9 o'clock, I'm calling this retreat to order. Just hang out with the wires. There you go, I do. Yeah. Can I get roll call? Trustee DeVries. I'm here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Avalada is not here. Trustee Jensen is not here. Trustee Bouquet is going to be a little late today. Uh, Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. We do have a quorum. Excellent. Um, we're skipping over um, closed session. We're going to go right to, uh, we're going to go back to closed session a little later because I have to leave at 1015 and I want to get right to, do we have any public comment? We do not. Okay. So um, let's do uh, B, board president welcome and context setting and, and CEO. So welcome. Good morning. This is important. We're going to be talking about the budget and the sustainability of the healthcare system. Uh, does our CEO have any uh, intense, you know, framing comments that he wants to make? <laughs> no, nothing intense, Mr. Uh, uh, President. Uh, I would just uh, want to publicly thank uh, uh, Trustee Hernandez and, and Banerjee for helping to coordinate uh, uh, today's retreat. Uh, it's our hope that uh, the topics, uh, um, uh, some pressing in nature, some uh, more of a uh, broad-based uh, thinking uh, uh, exercise or you know, board guidance exercise, all of it, I would say. And so we're hoping that you, you view this as a useful and valuable uh, um, uh, uh, contribution of your time uh, to these important uh, efforts. And we'll talk about more of that as we go along and at the end of conclusion of today's retreat. Good. All right, so let's go right to C1, the status of efforts to prevent closures of programs and facilities. Okay, so I'd like to uh, invite Dr. Smith up to uh, join me uh, at the table here. Uh, you all have met uh, Dr. Kevin Smith, the chair of OBGYN, uh, in previous uh, meetings. Um, uh, but with this topic, um, what, what was the thrust, uh, as I understood it, um, uh, in, in planning with uh, Trustee Strategy and, and, and uh, Hernandez was to really talk about um, what efforts after the budget um, discussions and the delay of the budget uh, to further look at uh, uh, opportunities to partner with the county but also continue to look internally at efforts that we had underway uh, and are continuing. Uh, what, will, what are more details about those efforts to share with you more context and then what will be the implications uh, programmatically and fiscally for those efforts and we're focused really on uh, two main areas here. It's OB um, and Women's Services and um, uh, Psych uh, Services or PES in particular but we share with you context for all of Psych. So um, uh, with that, um, actually, what do you need? Sorry. What do you need? Oh, oh yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, so, is it is it up there? Oh, there we are. Okay, great. Uh, it's not working. Let me make sure I park up. Boy, I guess I really rushed this this morning. Button? Even the computer's oh, not Yeah, hold on. It's not idiot it's not Oh, it's not me. Oh, wait. It's not you. It's the battery. Oh, it's nice. It's nice when it's not there. Uh, yeah, uh, do you want to just advance it for me, Dave? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so, as I, I sort of uh, laid this out, uh, we have, um, just to let you know, a lot of the work that happens in the space happens really at a uh, sort of subject matter expertise level. So it's the uh, operational and, thank you, 
The operational and clinical leads for these uh, areas uh, have been working to implement strategies that we've been talking about over several months, actually, uh, which include, as we've been saying, a combination of growth and revenue enhancement uh, um, um, uh, opportunities as well as improvements in our efficiencies. And so uh, this slide just captures an uh, overview of kind of the strategy of, of these efforts um, uh, in OB and women's services and in psych emergency at a high level, and then the high level impact, and then uh, the rest of the presentation just goes into a little bit more granular detail. So just to lay this out uh, before I turn it over to uh, Dr. Smith for the next slides. Um, in OB NICU, um, our strategies uh, uh, on a high level is to utilize our existing capacity, so kind of maintaining our costs and looking at what opportunities we have to increase the number of deliveries at AHS, uh, largely through partnerships with UCSF and also other community partners. Uh, secondly, to improve NICU billing and denials uh, management through revenue improvement strategies. That's a little bit more work with PEAT uh, that we won't go into greater detail about that uh, necessarily today, but that's uh, part of the global strategy. Uh, are the impact, uh, we hope, uh, for this year. Uh, would be a growth of deliveries uh, to about uh, 200 deliveries and corresponding NICU cases. Financially, the impact is about 1.45 million if we're able to achieve, attain this goal and incremental margin uh, for those 200 deliveries and the NICU volume. And is that this year, that, that, would, that growth and, and capture? That is our goal. Our goal. Okay. Uh, that, 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 that would uh, be something that we've attained this year. And uh, as I mentioned, and Dr. Smith will go into detail, uh, the work to set the uh, groundwork for this has been underway for several months now, um, uh, and uh, we're hoping to uh, continue to ramp it up and, uh, and materialize this, uh, this um, uh, goal. Women's services increase uh, service efficiencies. Uh, this is in the uh, outpatient space uh, through uh, adjusting our template sizes um, uh, to leverage opportunities we see there and improve and increase uh, visit volume. And that visit volume is even above and beyond, as you know, system-wide in our uh, ambulatory space uh, for primary or yeah, primary and specialty <coughs> care. Uh, we have budgeted an increase of 3% in our volume in that space. And then this inc includes the um, factoring in Sapphire and the slowdown we're yes. likely to see. Yes, it does. Uh, great question. Um, and Dr. Smith will talk uh, more about that. And then in psych, uh, um, opportunity, as we've mentioned and, and discussed a little bit last night as well, opportunity for Im improvement in the interim county rates that we receive, as well as longer-term payments uh, to match the actual cost of the uh, services that we provide. As you know, our PES is billed as a um, crisis stabilization unit. It's structured uh, that way, uh, but uh, in practice, uh, we differ from uh, uh, more, more run-of-the-mill crisis stabilizations because we operate on more of a medical model than a, a behavioral or a psychiatric model uh, where we are heavily um, staffed with psychiatrists and nurses versus behavioralists and therapists. Uh, and that has an incremental impact on both our costs and, and the variance in our revenue. And so the goal would be, as we continue our rate negotiations uh, with the county, which we haven't uh, set the uh, contract rates for 2020 yet, uh, but that the short-term opportunity would be gap closure. Um, um, uh, and there's an opportunity from the um, short dual perspective of about 3.4 million a year, we believe, and 5.8 from uh, uh, Medicare. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But with that, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Smith to go into greater detail on the uh, OB and women's services side. Thank you. Uh, first off, I really appreciate the consideration of the board to uh, delay any sort of hasty decisions around service line cuts. Um, and 
can assure you that my goal and energy is around <coughs> growing this department and serving this population as best we can, independent of financial buyers that have to be put out. Um, that said, uh, looking at the, the next slide, regarding the delivery increase, uh, fortunately we've been able to create a great relationship with UCSF. Um, I'm working with the chair there and one of the strategy leads there um, for a mutually beneficial end game here where they are impacted um, actually with their OB delivery care at uh, Mission Bay to the point that they actually sort of have to create a, a strategy to divert patients. They also have a mission around um, treating patients in the East Bay. Um, so it kind of works out great that we can partner with them in a way to brand, maybe even co-brand and co-market in such a way that we divert patients from uh, leaving Alameda County, going to Mission Bay and staying here and uh, increasing our, our um, overall delivery volume. So, um, are they, um, oh sorry, the Children's Hospital having a birthing uh, that's on hold right now? So I heard rumors of that when I got here and have had nothing to confirm that since. Okay. Yes, so we, um, we uh, I, I, I thought I had shared this, apologies if I did not, but we actually had, as a part of uh, these efforts, our, our, the first meeting that I uh, was fortunate to have with the uh, chair of uh, OB at, uh, uh, chair, actually, who, who came. You met with Dana yeah. Gossett, who's the strategy leader. Right, the strategy leader, right, right. Um, um, physician uh, uh, strategy lead, um, and a couple of their members, all along with um, uh, Dr. Mike Anderson, who's the CEO of Children's Hospital, and members of his team. And at that meeting, they discussed with us that um, that they they're they're, they're sort of <coughs> telegraphing about uh, normal newborn delivery services in the East Bay, or in response to this uh, impacted nature at Missions Bay at Mission Bay that Dr. Smith just mentioned. Um, they con that they actually didn't, and reassured us that they actually didn't have any uh, concrete plans in place, and that this was, uh, they appreciated this opportunity to have this conversation, but this was a, uh, a potential for that to be, to meet that exact need, and uh, subject to that being kind of a partnership that we could uh, develop and cultivate, that that would probably be uh, the, um, the right solution um, for the short term, certainly, <coughs> and perhaps even the long term in terms of a collaboration or a strong, strengthened collaboration between our two organizations. So. And, and these Thank are patients. Yes. And these are patients from the East Bay? Uh, in many cases, yeah, they told us that their, their, their volume is coming from all over the Bay Area, and what we're focused on, I think, is primarily that volume that's coming Retaining patients Bay. from the East Bay, and, and honestly, transparently, um, diverting some patients that are going to other hospitals in the East Bay. <laughs> so, cool beans. Yeah, it is. They are cool beans. Um, they're a great team. The partnership is just natural and evolving very nicely. This just happens to create some impetus, but um, we were going this way anyway. Um, part of that is fortifying our high-risk OB service with a partnership, um, a collaboration with UCSF, such that the UCSF perinatology services also supply uh, high-risk OB services to our patients um, in a way that's a lot more robust than we have now. Um, that also provides some marketing and redirecting and I just think it's going to evolve into probably more than the numbers I'm 
I'm suggesting here, but I'd rather, you know, under promise and over deliver. Uh, but it's strategy. You like that? Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're going in that direction for sure. We actually have a meeting today at noon with uh, Dr. Mary Norton, who is the division chief for uh, obstetrics at UCSF, um, around logistics of <coughs> transferring, just the logistics of this partnership. Uh, but it should be noted that she's pretty world-renowned for her genetics um, expertise and could also bring an extra service line to our population as well. So I'm very excited uh, about all of that. There's a few uh, steps that have to be taken, but I, I have a lot of support from the leadership here and um, just the community to make all this, and you, to make all this happen. Doctor, I'm just going to interrupt you. Say good morning to uh, Trustees Alvaleta Jensen. Um, uh, your doctor's telling us about the capture of uh, up to 200 um, uh, East Bay patients um, from uh, UCSF to be part of our, uh, to, to give birth here, basically. Is that, did I summarize that? Yeah, I would now? say obstetric. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to under-promise and over-deliver. Uh, you heard that, right? right? Everyone heard that. Um, but uh, I would say obstetrical care is more than just delivering babies, and there's lots of capture associated around that. But I know what you meant. Yeah. I have a question uh, about the population that might come here. Um, what would you say is, you know, the ethnic background of the women that are using our services currently what would you say is the that? large majority is latino or latin x and then the very close second is um, african-american and okay. then there's several other demographics okay. that follow so i i would encourage a very deliberate campaign in spanish <coughs> love this. it and it needs to be very deliberate to say that we provide an entire experience for the family because it's somewhat, you know, a joke. I'm, I'm not being stereotyped here, but when a baby's born in Mexico or in Latin American countries, it's everybody's baby. You know, it's everybody's joy. It's everybody coming in to really in, uh, be part of that experience in really unique ways. And I want to be very honest and say the more we can be a, a you know, user-friendly and, and family-centric and all of that, the, the better. But we can do that in really fun ways and healthy ways, too, so that it's educational and it engages the family in seeing AHS as their entire place of health and uh, where, where they're going to get health care. Yeah, and I would add to that that we often think of, you know, this as when we think about OB, we think about the birthing and the central yeah. pregnancy, but branding all of the other yeah. things that you do through the life course yeah. for women, like that needs to be. And then yesterday at the ambulatory, we were looking at how our feeds population, the children population is low in primary care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, connecting the OB to the feeds of well baby mm -hmm. and fat. So, getting those families in right from the beginning into our system. So, you know. Yeah. Definitely, uh, uh, yeah. definitely a part of, I think, the, the, the trajectory we're on, uh, but certainly uh, uh, more work to do in that space. And I know uh, Terry uh, Lightfoot and the PACE team are listening. We, we, we uh, really are proud of uh, uh, <coughs> the increasing uh, uh, efforts and focus around um, um, 
health equity and diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion, particularly in the OB space. And Dr. Smith, I want Steely Thunder could actually share uh, some great news that he shared with me recently and some work that he's doing in that space. But I just wanted to share anecdotally, uh, when, when my daughter was born um, at the hospital, it was just my wife and I, we decided that you know we wanted the in-laws to wait so we could figure out what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> but our nurse was uh, uh, Mexican, and she said, uh, is it just you two? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, what, is, that, is that OK? And she's like, well, I just, I just want to know. And she, she, goes, she goes, if you need, I could, I could provide a proper Mexican family. <laughs> If okay, I'd like to make two comments. Uh, you know, being this is my 11th year at Highland and living in the East Bay a long way, I've, I've, I've noticed an interesting cultural kind of phenomenon. Um, uh, and I've been colleagues with all the prior OB Gyne chairs. You know, uh, there's been a the interesting phenomenon is that many of our patients have continue to all their prenatal care, all their evaluation through our hospital system because we're, we're, we're attuned to this population, yet deliver it out to Bates. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been a historical mm -hmm. thing in the mm -hmm. East Bay because mm -hmm. Alta Bates was, quote, the nice hospital. Mm -hmm. Now, all this legacy preceded the, the opening mm -hmm. of, our, of our wonderful unit here, which mm -hmm. I'd argue is probably one of the most beautiful um, birthing centers in, in, in the East Bay. Um, I think this has sort of probably been one of our opportunities, and I know we've done some nice branding. I, you know, there was a nice one where, uh, a nice poster where a kid said, this room is better than my room at home, and, and that, that was a great one. So I, I think that's a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon that we're going to have to continually overcome. And, and the, the beauty of that center and our staff sort of sells itself, but we have to sell it too. So yeah, good, good that Terry has, has work to do. Uh, the second uh, long-range picture is, is for us to recall that in 2015, Sutter announced that they would close out to Bates, um, Berkeley, in, uh, in, in some undisclosed time frame. That out Bates, Berkeley is, is where the bulk of East Bay deliveries occur. My child, one of my children was born there. Yeah, and, and so, so we see that there is an impending vacuum which is coming just at some undisclosed. So I think this is remarkable opportunity for us if we if we if we can if we can do it correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I when we were, had this budget discussion about obstetrics, I brought that up, and I, as I recall, I, but with the, the the message that came back was that Altabates patients wouldn't be coming here. That was when I brought it up during the budget discussion. So hopefully, there's another um, plan to to attract the the patients who are going to out debates because um, I agree I think that's mm -hmm. really um, a, a potential market right. mm -hmm. um, my question well I guess regarding the budget too was um, dr. Smith you had mentioned that um, that are these services that we provide OB and um, and women's health services are tied to our trauma certification and I wonder if you could just um, provide a little more detail about that that would be really helpful my detail is really that in order to have the level one or level two trauma cla certification, classifications that you do need the obstetrical services. <coughs> it, it's hard to hear you. Oh. Part of the criteria. It might not to, be you, it might be somebody. To have the classification of level one or level two is having this obstetrical service. So if those services weren't provided here at this site at, at you Highland. You could not attain level okay. one or level Thank two you. trauma status, exactly. Um, I just have to say you are all preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, I see uh, Terry Lightfoot over here sweating because uh, we, we talk about marketing all the time. I text him, I call him and pretend we're talking about German Shepherds and then I sort of move into marketing. Um, so I, I have to tell you, it's very exciting to be here right now. Um, I know the circumstances are strained, but to be a part of this rebuilding and rebranding is what I came for. And everything you're saying, we have been talking about. And I will enlist each of you to help um, as we go forward. Um, so yeah, I have a I'm couple there. of comments slash questions. Um, I guess the first would be around you know plans to engage with community OBGYNs and community pediatricians. I think. One of the things that you know has, I think, been a barrier, and when you talk about folks going to out debates, oftentimes maybe there is public perception as well. But I think a lot of it is what their what their OBGYN is is saying, right? And so, and and sometimes you know because we don't, I think, to my knowledge, have um, community pediatricians rounding here as well. When there are relationships in the community between OBGYN and pediatrics practice, um, there's a concern that the baby will be lost, so to speak, and, and get assigned to somebody else. So, just curious if we have any um, sort of plans to do to extend our marketing, I think, out to community physicians and what emerging partnerships could look like there. Another awesome question. Um, there is a whole presentation here, and some of these things do come up. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I will say that, um, generally speaking, um, I had a chance to meet with Laura Miller, uh, the medical director for CHCN, um, and there's a tiny crisis going on for them as well in that OBGYN Partners has decided no longer to take Medi-Cal patients. So mm -hmm. there's this whole window of opportunity for us, and I asked about the numbers, and there are a lot of, I mean, 20,000 patients that are sent outside of CHCN that could have, that went to OBGYN partners or huh. other groups that we can capture. <coughs> so that has already started even before these budget talks happened. But this is giving us uh, energy and strategy opportunities to really, yes, reach out to Right. Us. So I'll make just a little plug that at least the last time I checked, a little over half of the county's Medi-Cal patients were actually seen outside of FQHC and um, county systems, meaning private, individual um, docs. And so it's just something to um, think about the safety net in a little bit broader way to include private docs who do take Medi-Cal. And there's more in the OBGYN space than adult medicine or any of the other spaces. And same with pediatrics as well. Um, I guess my second comment is sort of coming from my day job, or usually day job, um, <laughs> in which uh, we run uh, two satellites within youth shelters and see a tremendous number of youth who are pregnant, who have been sexually trafficked, who are um, homeless, and um, we partner with AHS and have amazing birth outcomes. Um, so we're really proud of that and proud of the partnership and I think have started to take advantage of the tours and things like that, which actually are really, really helpful. And I would say as part of our marketing strategy, the tours have to, have to, have to be promoted because yeah. once people see the yeah, facility, awesome. they won't want to be here and feel like, you know, they're getting the top-notch care they are. But my question, I guess, is how do we reflect the fact that the baseline of our patients is so much more challenging than the rest of the community, and yet we're knocking it out of the park with our outcomes. And so just, yeah, wanting to make sure that, you know, not necessarily in the marketing campaign, but certainly as we um, take our show on the road, you know, how, how are we reflecting that? I think the, 
clearest demonstration is that we're decorated by our um, insurance carrier for our safety strategies and our successes there. And we've had members of our department plucked from um, our group to actually campaign with these strategies for other partner hospitals and members. So I think there's ways, I know there was some internet um, marketing around that success. I think that could be broader. There's actually a, an award we're receiving today, or, 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 you know, there are things that are happening that should be um, broadcast in a bigger way, and I, I agree with you on that. But my answer to your question is that despite the acuity, the quality is so high, and that's that's messaging that I think we can. And sometimes it's hard to demonstrate that. So I don't know if we're. I'm assuming we're asking people about their housing status. If you know, so in other words, if we're able to reflect a baseline that X percent of our patients were housing insecure, food insecure, or whatever the case was when they presented to us, and yet we still have these outcomes. I know that those are hard things to show, but as we move into really looking at social determinants of health and team-based care and all that, I just would want to. I'm not sure how that plays out in a you know TV ad, but I, I do think it's important messaging and. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a way there's a way we do have to send that out and I'm very proud of that too. And, um, our internet is our intranet. I think there's social media, there's Facebook, there's the ways that our um, population no matter what oh you got something to say? <laughs> I was thinking even just in our marketing to the community physicians, right? Because that's something the community physician would want to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and if I may say, word of mouth in the Latino the community is the right. most, you know, important this, yeah. thing to do, as well as radio. We we continue radio to use good. radio far more than other um, media. I appreciate you letting me take this over as a, a strategy meeting. That's <laughs> why <laughs> I want to let Terry speak to this too. Um, um, just to remind the board to um, actually kind of that we, with the board's evolution too, kind of took a bit of a um, a bit of a different path. This actually came up when I told you yesterday I had a uh, lunch with the staff or the departments that got um, uh, finished their employee engagement surveys first and uh, some of the people ask us about mass marketing. Um, we do both. We're, we're doing uh, more retail uh, marketing for specific services. OB has been on that trajectory particularly since the building opened where we've been doing outreach to particular practices and doing tours and sharing um, uh, pre-prepared packets that have all this detail going out to them uh, to do those types of marketing as well as mass marketing. From the mass marketing perspective, we did dial it back. Um, uh, those uh, trustees who've been on it here longer will recall that you know, circa 2014 and 15, AHS was out and uh, as, uh, um, as aggressive and uh, um, uh, uh, present as a lot of our, our, our uh, other counterparts with TV ads and other things. Mm -hmm. And there was some uh, census from a lot of our leaders that uh, that was incongruent with some of the priorities that we had as an organization and a focus. So we responded to that by uh, dialing it back and being a little bit more surgical uh, with our efforts. Um, uh, somewhat, I know, to the dismay of uh, the marketing team uh, because they uh, obviously uh, are, are the are the choir in the church there in um, promoting the um, the importance of marketing and uh, messaging. And so we've tried to strike that balance, but in this area, uh, we're continuing along that same trajectory of really 
being a bit more surgical uh, um, in terms of balancing our resources and making sure that the face of an organization that uh, does what we do and has the challenges we have, that that doesn't get mixed up in the eyes of like you all and the uh, county to suggest that there's some kind of discordance between this. But clearly this is, I think, uh, very congruent and I've uh, asked Terry to, to share that. That's the messaging we share with the staff who asked us about this as well. So, uh, is that mic on? Yep. Yeah, it is. Okay. So, first of all, let me say uh, thank you. You are preaching to the choir, if I would be the choir. Uh, Dr. Smith and I have had conversations quite frequently about how we can uh, better market and promote our family and birthing center uh, services. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate many of the ideas that have been discussed, and I think Del Vecchio touched upon it. Uh, were some of the things that we did when we actually opened the acute care tower yeah. and mm -hmm. we were very successful in taking the message and materials out to providers in the community and to the clinics and schedule a number of tours on an ongoing basis. So I, I believe there was some real success in that area. I, I'm a little cautious to say, well, I know it wasn't all due to marketing because the space really does sell itself. So bringing people into the building and arranging that to make that happen on a regular basis was really successful and spreading the word about our family birthing center. And even still today, when people come here who haven't been here in a while, they're still very impressed about what they see. Um, in terms of really looking at the disparities and equities piece, um, that's not necessarily a marketing piece per se, but we are trying to find ways that we get that message out in the community in different ways, whether it's through <coughs> media, finding the right conferences, and partnering with groups that have a similar message that can help elevate or um, cast a brighter light on what we're doing. So we're looking at it from a perspective of being engaged in a conversation more, uh, in addition to just marketing ideas. So you want to be seen as thought leaders in this space. And so Dr. Smith has been um, providing a lot of energy and putting us out there. And we have a lot of people on his team who are involved in the community with the county who are already involved in these conversations. So we're trying to leverage those interactions more as well to really help people understand what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, to really drive the outcomes and not just market the service. We want to make sure that what we're marketing is the better outcomes for the moms and babies, not just the service and the rooms and the space. And we're trying to really um, create a good balance between those two things because we think um, in addition to driving volume, we want to do the right thing by the moms in our community, and that's really the underlying purpose and the message that we're trying to deliver. So I look forward to doing more, um, and we'll talk more about you know resources and other things. But no, Dobeki is right. We've taken a more retail approach, recognizing we do have some budget constraints. But I think to the degree that we've touched more people directly, it's continued to help us, and we're looking at doing more of that moving forward this year. So, just wanted to add that, and thank you for your thank time. you. I love the, the concept, though, really, of emphasizing the quality, the outcomes with our marketing. And, and I, I agree with you 100% on that, and I'm really proud of it. And maybe it isn't discussed enough or in the right forums, but I like that. I mean, Ford did it, quality for I mean, there, there are ways to make it really a smart marketing campaign and drive the volume while sending our message. I um, had a thought about uh, also partnerships and politics and outreach. Um, the, we, we've heard some points about the pediatric, the relationship with pediatrics and women's health and obstetrics. And um, we know that especially in Oakland, the school-based health centers are funded by a variety and a, and a, and a loosely knit um, 
number of, of organizations, and not including, including Alameda County, but not including this facility. And so, not that that is a mission or objective of, of Alameda Health System, mm -hmm. but um, school-based health is growing and it's becoming better funded and Measure A dollars were intended, as we know, to support services for children and children grow up to become moms. So um, that's an opportunity, I think, that Dad, could not be. Not most her dads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. dad. But they don't come to the upset <laughs> of their dads. So. We don't give birth. <laughs> sure. I like that. Of course. Um, I just want to keep going. I want to do a quick time check. I yeah. really. You have a hard stop. Uh, well, I do. You yes. don't. Uh, but I really want to make sure we dive into the psychiatric exactly. stuff because okay. this this is all internal that we have the control over doing our best to build and market and, and attract. Um, the psychiatric really relies on our county partners. And I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of what our ask to the county is going to be. So if we could make we could just list five these minutes. Last yeah, like, yeah, like just five, just a time check, like five more minutes. Is that cool? Um, in terms of the outpatient women's clinics, uh, what we're doing, uh, Dr. Uh, just mentioned, we're increasing our template size so that we increase our volume. Uh, we're also minimizing our uh, no-shows with um, open access strategies that have shown mm -hmm. decreased uh, no-shows if you get those appointments within two weeks of the time you talk to the patient. Um, we have marketing that we've sort of talked about a lot here today, but one of the more exciting, more immediate things we can do in concert with September as the um, Gynecology Cancer Awareness Month um, is we will have a big campaign to um, increase our pap smears um, as a cervical screening campaign and that drives the families in and then we kind of make them happy and keep them going forward. Um, let's see what else I have here. I'm on the, oh that side, yeah. Um, so we've consolidated just to kind of affect um, bottom line costs. We've consolidated underutilized clinics. We've already, that'll start um, August 15th. We have not canceled any uh, clinical service <coughs> specialties or lines at all. Um, we have uh, the unique um, structure here that where we do a lot of our outpatient uh, GYN work is our FQHC home and potentially just by moving a procedure from there to here increases our revenue. So there's a deep dive going on um, in terms of that. So there's some really crafty things that are happening just to kind of help with that bottom line. Uh, the other thing that fell out of the sky for us, which was another couple of quick measures um, that are going to be very easy for us to meet. One is contraception, particularly targeting uh, LARC direction to patients in our demographic, uh, comparing that to the general population, which I'm sure we're doing, and uh, chlamydia screening, and those will probably save the uh, organization $1.3 million a piece. Hmm. Um, so, uh, $1.5 million a piece, yeah. So um, I think that's kind of the... How will that save the county? Will you walk me through that one more time? So the monies that you, we wouldn't have to give back that money. Um, that we would, the dish-ish money, supplemental. the okay. supplemental money, okay. that we just wouldn't have to give it back by meeting those uh, quick metrics, but we're, we're going to meet those. Okay. Huh. Um, and 
Did you need me to? No, I think, so. I think it's captured. Oh, we, yeah, I can do the next piece. Okay. So uh, just to, um, again, thank uh, Dr. Smith, uh, uh, not just for today's presentation, but the collaboration, uh, as I, I hope you can uh, hear, it's been very robust and uh, uh, really um, thoughtful and covering a lot of areas, access, uh, quality, uh, um, uh, uh, efficiency and, and certainly sustainability, uh, but also being really strategic about trying to uh, look internally as well as externally to um, continue to lift up what we believe is a high quality service and one that we do appreciate. And as he said, um, uh, one that we appreciate your support and the county support that this is not something we want to move away from. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, you'll we'll, we'll continue to track with him. Uh, implementation of a lot of these uh, methods or um, um, uh, interventions which are underway right now and obviously um, uh, we, we, we're, we're in the sort of field of dream space like build it and, and see if they come uh, and we believe they will um, and we believe we have good reason to be optimistic about it based off of some of the uh, things that you've heard um, in, uh, in this space um, sort of broadly clinically so great um, in that sorry it's gonna cut you off That's um, <clears throat> Dr. Smith thank you and I know that um, uh, some of our deliberations may have caused a bit of a scare, um, but I, um, I really appreciate you coming back and kind of giving us some, some really tangible um, objectives that are, that are going to help make the, the department efficient. Um, in the summary, I saw $1.45 million for the growth in uh, delivery, um, and it says 352000 for OB women's clinics, but you had just suggested $1.5 million. Times two. Times two, which is $3 million of, of capture. For the QIP measure. For the QIP measure. Oh, QIP. So, uh, separate, yeah, separate. That's not on this front. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that wasn't built uh, in our model. That's specifically for 200 deliveries. You're saying that the, the, the first right, or, uh, opportunities for the 200 deliveries, yeah. Right. The QIP, the QIP thing is a new development. That oh, that's not in here. That's not. It's referenced here, but it's not included in that amount. Right, right okay. There's separate line items. Correct. Yeah. I didn't see that other line item. That was what. That's correct. I, I agree with Dr. Uh, Mr. DeVries. I, I want to go into the math of this because we got to yeah. make math decisions. And believe it or not, I'm actually more of a healthcare guy than a finance guy, but the, the current chair put me on the finance committee. So I've been really like stuck on numbers the past Good. year and a half. Numbers are important. Um, so anyway. So we didn't roll up all of the numbers of this into the budget context because, uh, as uh, I want to remind you, um, the, the uh, thinking particularly in this area is that these efforts, as we said when we did the budget process, were already underway but wouldn't close that gap. So we can we can bring back to you. Uh, but they'll help close it. Oh, they'll certainly help close it. Now, so, and that was the point here. That so when our budget comes back to us for approval in August, I would expect that the 1.45 million, the 352,000, and that additional 1.5 million W would be part of the analysis. Part of the projection. That's that correct. We'll make like a decision on on a budget. That's correct. Yes. Thank you. That is the that's so the, the, the. I do that one, two, three, four. Five. So that's five million or so. The quick part I want to make sure about because I don't know if I had confirmation that this is uh, if they it may be this uh, situation that they are new measures we have to figure uh, they are new measures but the new measures if they increase the overall opportunity or if they just become right. opportunities for us to replace other measures which may not have a incremental impact but all but would give us more certainty that we have and measures that we would increase actually, over the baseline correct okay. so so i just want to cool. that and, and that's that, probably why we have it uh, reflected this way and also in, in in the vein of this discussion of math so uh, in my discussions with the with the trauma teams so uh, indeed, OB services are linked to trauma classification. So trauma one, trauma two. Yeah. We get measure C yes. because of trauma, which is $6 million. Right. 
So loss of OB. So, we got it. So that's people. OB will be traumatic. Well, I mean, OB but, but, but doing the math, there's six million, there's yes. three million. That's well, that was included. That was included in the daughter. Let's let's talk NICU. Okay. Revenue was included, right? Yeah. Yes. I'll do these three interventions. We talked about the strategy. Basically, again. I can need to address access uh, opportunities, but also uh, address our sustainability. So in the NICU space, and uh, Dr. Carey um, uh, is on. Um, and do try to be louder or more closer to your mic. Thank I'm you, sorry. sorry. I, I don't know why it's you. Someone told me this yesterday. Oh, you did it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was him. It was you and a team member gave me some feedback on my way out last night. So here we are. Um, on the NICU, three different um, um, sort of interventions we're looking at. One is through our conversations with uh, the NICU team. There was a concern about whether or not uh, through our web cycle process uh, uh, there were uh, adequate uh, um, capture of interventions being done that then impacted then coding uh, that then uh, uh, obviously uh, may or may not based off of peers have an impact on revenue that we get. So there's been a lot of effort between uh, the clinical leads uh, in um, OB and the administrative leads along with our finance team mm -hmm. to look uh, at that a bit more closely. Some of it is like uh, what then, because NICU is based off the level of service uh, that you're billing for and to see if we're appropriately billing at a certain level uh, uh, that then leads to appropriate uh, uh, um, uh, approval by the, uh, by the peer to then get us uh, uh, compensated appropriately. Yeah. So, and then, so that's one of the things, the second one, I'm having a hard time reading this week. Uh, the per case peer uh, um, I, I flipped my own, so I can't see it. Thank you. Uh, analyze that per case uh, contract rate. So this is not so now not just talking about the charge capture piece, but then looking at the rates that we have in our contracts for the services. So there's an opportunity to improve or address uh, uh, rates. Obviously, our rates are part of broader contracts. So uh, the question is whether or not um, there is opportunity here when we look at our reimbursement relative to our costs uh, to then talk to our. Uh, principal pairs to see if we can actually then kind of particularly or specifically look at this line to see if there's an opportunity to do uh, rate adjustment. So we're we're exploring that as well and looking uh, more closely into that. And then finally, uh, there's a certification in the state of California called CCS, California Children's Services, uh, for um, um, oh, or, I'm sorry, um, pediatric services, particularly NICU and uh, uh, pediatric services for a very you know, high acuity or high need uh, pediatric population, and we're exploring uh, securing that certification for the organization. There is speculation that that will help us, but it's not cooperated yet, and we wouldn't want to do it because there's a lot of work uh, around attain surrounding uh, attaining the accreditation and maintaining it. Uh, uh, so we won't do it if it doesn't seem to make any impact, uh, one, on the care that we're providing and then secondarily on the reimbursement we get. But it is a strategy that we're continuing to look closely at uh, with those same individuals. So we're just giving you a heads up there. So with all three of these, we really don't have any sort of reasonable Fiscal. dollar amount attached to it. How, how soon would point. we just have um, time for a budget discussion? We'll, or? Have, we'll have something that is uh, the best speculation we can. For, for a budget uh, for the budget con uh, uh, considerations that we'll bring forward, okay. whether it'll be a rough order of magnitude at that point, it may still be, uh, but, but we'll have something at that point. Okay. Cool. Right. Or any, any questions? Any questions for good site? Nope. Great. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So thank you. Turning. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Sorry, I'm going to rush you. We, I hope to have you back often. <laughs> Careful what you ask. For.
Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, uh, so uh, thank you. Uh, we talk um, um, predominantly on PES and then uh, John George. And actually, uh, Ishwar, if you don't mind, I'll ask you to join me here. There's uh, some details here I may, I may get a As she comes up, I, I, I hope everyone went over these slides already. I know, I, I, I took a yeah. second read of them last night. I, I think we need to schedule now. We need to ask for um, <clears throat> our, our county partners maybe to be at the table for uh, in, in the next week or two for some meetings. I guess all of this hinges on the county, correct? Uh, yes. It, yeah. it is involved in a contract negotiation with the county for behavioral health services. And so whether that's here in a public meeting or, or if there's smaller meetings happening with, with county in terms of its contract negotiation, that's obviously not necessarily public. I just want to make sure we're getting those details in real time. Sure. So we have an understanding and so that the supervisors are getting those details in real time so that there's no surprise in yes. late August of what we would like to see happen. So we'll work on that. Um, uh, uh, let me, uh, so to that point. end, I, I wonder if we could spend just a minute giving some context here. What's yes. this? Who's responsible for this service within the community legally? Who, and what's our role? Uh, the system's role in providing this service. If you could say a little bit more about services, really services. So I, I, I would be a little bit, uh, and Dr. Triple's not here, unfortunately, but I'd be a little bit uh, uh, hesitant from my vantage point. I would say that I, I don't have as much clarity on that point, but yeah. Uh, what I understand, uh, particularly from the PES perspective, uh, generally in counties uh, through uh, Mental Health Services Act, is that counties generally, uh, counties are have the designation uh, or the ability to designate crisis stabilization uh, units and uh, uh, psych emergency designation. It, there really, in state law, isn't a designation for a psychiatric emergency or, uh, uh, per se. So we call it a PES, but really is a crisis stabilization unit. Um, uh, the county designates our ability to do that. They also designate uh, 5150 uh, uh, status to uh, John George, which uh, you know up until recently, uh, there were very few other 5150 designated uh, receiving facilities. But as of now, uh, we have extended that uh, to all of our ERs in uh, AHS now. So uh, Alameda and San Leandro now have 5150 uh, uh, designations so they can both receive and uh, place and lift 5150s. Uh, and I think um, St. Rose may, though I can't, uh, yeah, I, I see some confirmation, thank you, Amy, uh, that they may have it as well uh, uh, recently too. But, but that's a county function. Uh, we then are the deliverer predominantly, uh, up until recently almost exclusively, uh, for um, PES services and inpatient psych services. We actually just got notification recently that Kaiser in, Sendley, in the Fremont location is opening an inpatient psych unit. Uh, we'll be going to uh, see that. And you know that, uh, you may know that Fremont Hospital has inpatient uh, psych as well in the county. <coughs> that, uh, as it may, so we have over time, and this kind of uh, gives you context for what's happening in PES, uh, actually under Dr. Tribble's leadership, because our PES is a crisis stabilization unit, uh, we bill for all PES services uh, through, well, we bill uh, predominantly to the county uh, for short dole and Medi-Cal uh, for the Medi-Cal and uninsured population. Uh, we do build some and commercial... Define, I'm sorry, define short dole. Uh, can I ask <laughs> you to do that? Trust me, so he probably has a good idea. It's the, it's the law that originally funded uh, mental health services in sure. California. 
Okay. okay. And short oil were two uh, senators, I believe, that started it. And then it over the years, it's uh, changed quite a bit. And they have a, a separate uh, funding for Medi-Cal, and it's called short oil Medi-Cal. And it's done in a in a slightly different way than it is for the rest of the system. Okay. okay but so short oil becomes the major source of funding for uh, counties, and there's. There's a lot of things under that umbrella. There's realignment funding. There, you know, there's a number of different things. But I think when we talk about short oil, we're really talking about services to the public sector. And the claiming process yeah, that results yeah, in us yeah. getting paid. So it's like a yeah. mechanism of yeah, getting yeah. paid that's different than us yeah. just billing Medi-Cal. So, so like for instance, the 5150 and 5250 and so forth, that was all done as part of the short oil process. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and. and I, I should have said at the offset, so I will share at the level of knowledge I have, and, and if there are more knowledgeable people in the room, please feel free to correct the record if I say something that's incorrect. Um, so, because of this construct, my understanding is that we bill our PES services predominantly to the county for that purpose. We bill commercial payers for uh, 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 their payers, like Kaiser. We have contract with Kaiser, and we have uh, reimbursement for when Kaiser patients get uh, PES services or inpatient psych services with us. Um, we cannot, for psychiatric, because it's a crisis stabilization unit, build Medicare. Uh, and so we, we rely on the county largely to facilitate the, the basically the payment mechanism for psych emergency, and that comes with some constraints. Uh, Dr. Tribble, um, um, in recognition of those constraints is really trying to figure out how we address the ability to see the same population that we see uh, in, in a, um, uh, as, as uh, consistently reliable a manner as possible, but address the opportunities to enhance the reimbursement for that same population uh, and, and that's in recognition of these constraints. So uh, we have uh, provided to the county, and we've been in discussion for several months, um, uh, in gradual incremental um, kind of uh, 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 detail around this opportunity to change our configuration. If, you, if those of you have been at John George, there's kind of a small unit and then a big unit when you go through PES, a few sort of rooms and beds and then the big area with the 11 bed unit. Um, we wanted to change the configuration and redesignate the first part as the PES, which would be uh, geographically a lot smaller, but it would be uh, and then the big part would be the crisis stabilization unit. So kind of have both uh, and treat that first part more like an emergency room where it's for uh, triage and assessment and stabilization, which then could be if a patient needs ongoing uh, monitoring and treatment, they could then be discharged from PES into crisis stabilization. The PES would be more like a uh, service where we can build uh, peers, including Medicare, for those services, which addresses what we believe is about an annualized uh, almost $6 million revenue opportunity, and then still provide the crisis stabilization. Um, huh. The county was understandably concerned about uh, this and wanted to discuss it more. And in fact, um, what are the concerns? Their concerns were if you call that part the PES, it's a it's a much smaller part. It so really we're requires some PES really, yeah. when we've been hitting the census. Correct. Correct. And it requires some really tight turnover to be able to do it. So it's kind of the concept uh, was just a little bit unsettling. Uh, we recognized that and said, okay, well, we want to share with you that the concept is not premised on actually changing our ability to, to uh, meet community need, but 
to address the sustainability challenges. So short of doing that, we need to recognize that we're losing what we believe um, just for Medicare is about $6 million. So, so if we want to sustain this in the short term while we look at, and this was how our conversation pivoted, a much broader concept where we weren't even constrained with just the physical uh, footprint and layout of PES right now to look at how we address either current or anticipated future needs in the psych space uh, that we could talk about, um, um, uh, have a, a much more evolved conversation. But in the meantime, we still have this looming, uh, uh, what we believe is a vulnerability that we have to address. With regard to the um, physical layout and the footprint, wouldn't this sounds like it would be advantageous to reducing the interactions and the, That's the, the thinking, potential yeah. um, you know, okay. challenges, physical issues, things like that? You mean with uh, in terms of a uh, safety it's perspective? Uh, uh, not necessarily. The way the unit's set up now, um, it, it, we pretty much operate it this way now almost. I mean, patients come in, they are triaged, and whether they walk in or via ambulance, they triage and assess in this area, and then they're immediately admitted to what uh, what we call the milieu, yeah. the big space. Yeah, immediate is a relative term. Was that the milieu? I, I like. Yeah, that. immediate is a relative. Oh, term. relative. Yes, it's not immediate. Yes, uh, we've heard from our partner. We've heard right. from staff at this. Well, the triage to, to into PES. Well, that part is that part is all, uh, almost uh, seamless, uh, and that's just in the PES context. Correct. It's out of. PES and there's another back end issue in PES which we reference in this piece which is uh, as a crisis stabilization unit uh, we are or at least through our arrangement with the county we're capped at 20 hours of time that a patient can be in that context so we often have patients who exceed 20 hours but we can only bill and be reimbursed for up to 20 hours. So what happens effectively and that's is in the PES or in the, the, the crisis stabilization? Well, 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 right now it's all one and the same. Okay. Right now it's one and the same. So the hour, hour zero, yes. So that, that actually offered an opportunity to address that issue too. So if someone is in PES and they're being stabilized, let's say, for a period of about two to three or more hours, that part would be a PES bill. And then let's say they need ongoing kind of care uh, before they can be discharged to the community. Then you reduce the likelihood, let's say they're there for another 18, 19 hours, you haven't exceeded 20 hours, you can bill for that as a crisis stabilization. Again, our crisis stabilization model is already a more costlier one because it's psychiatric or psychiatrists and nurses versus the more behavioral model. So these, um, this, just on this slide, sure, I just lost the slide, okay. On this slide, you have three significant cost uh, what, capture. What, what page Which on? slide are you We're on? Uh, Seven, page, same one he's on. Uh, the one that's here, yeah. Okay. So, Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. You're probably, are you on this one? Or yeah, I'm on the same one you're on. Yeah, on the one. Yeah. Okay. Huh? Oh, 12. Well, it's page 7. It's 12. It's 12. It's okay. So, the, the 5.8 million is because we can now bill Medicare, not Medicaid. Medicare, right. because we can't. We cannot. That's the, the loss. The loss. Right. So, by making this change, that's a $5.8 million gain. It would be, but we're not making the change. I was, I'm, I'm providing context so that you understand what the opportunity is here. Yes. So we are not at this one. <laughs> That's a push. So, so maybe the, okay. Sorry, I was, Sorry. I was looking at the second page. Perhaps let me go a bit further. I was, yeah, I was yeah, trying I'll to respond to Josh. Uh, let me give you uh, context. So, so I'm going to just 
talk broadly about kind of this is a baseline of where, where we see the factors got, that contribute to the ten million dollar uh, annualized uh, uh, loss uh, on a contribution cool. margin basis for a PES. All right, and it comes from what we believe is these kind of three areas: uh, the inability to bill Medicare, the billing practices uh, uh, that are based off of the interim rates, and then the, that are adjusted, and and that adjustment even still uh, having this opportunity of about three point four million dollars each year, and then finally uh, um, the cost impact of the volume that we're receiving and then the acuity of those spaces that contribute to them staying longer, which is a big, uh, a, a, uh, one of the bases on which we get denials uh, uh, from the counties for a portion of the cost that we uh, submit to them that is under the contract that then we can't get reimbursed for. Okay? You, everybody follow? So, yeah, I guess the, that part that I'm confused about is the denials. So. So we're at risk for all of it, even though, even though this is sort of, I mean, we're dependent. We have these parameters. Right. Yes. So the, the delivery model uh, uh, produces costs for which we have these parameters that don't allow us to seek uh, um, um, robust reimbursement for those costs, and we end up absorbing them. Okay, and that's, uh, that's a partnership with the county conversation, or is that something that's... Um, it is, okay. yeah. So so I, I was sharing uh, broadly what we were trying to propose that was a sort of a short-term plan to try to address some of these in a different way. Uh, the plan now, or the, the, the things that are under consideration now, is that we have gone into this deeper level of analysis to explain to the county at least our analysis of what's driving our losses in this area as a basis on which to now have a conversation with them that says, if you don't in the short term change your model, but we change the way in which you're reimbursed so that you can, uh, uh, you can be reimbursed more for your costs, what would that look like? And that's the conversation that we have just informed them now, giving them the data, and they're analyzing the data, and they're using Toyon, as we understand it, to help to analyze our analysis and the source data for our analysis to then be able to inform a contract negotiation uh, between us and them that um, ideally addresses this opportunity as well as one in the inpatient side. But I guess just so I'm clear, analysis aside, right, the structure is that, so if, let's say, in the case of Sausal Creek, that was not a collaborative decision to my knowledge, but if that then impacts mm -hmm. our ability and creates um, services for which we then become un uncompensated, uh, it, se it seems like there would be a process to either, yes, yeah, sort of collaboratively to talk about the entire, the system as an entirety. So, yes. And that would be aside from any analysis of did it have this impact or did it not, but just conceptual framework, right? This is right. a, it's a system and we have a small part. Yes. And if one part gets eliminated and that causes more stress on us, then we're at risk is the current structure. Right. Yes, that's correct. So right now what we have is on a... I think it's not here on a quarterly basis. She's at a CAPH meeting. On a quarterly basis, I believe is the frequency we have a leadership team, a joint leadership meeting between us and healthcare services and the components of healthcare services. So, um, uh, general healthcare services all around, behavioral health, public health, and other entities where we talk about these opportunities. Obviously, once a quarter is probably not the frequency that we will need while we deal with this. Uh, element, uh, but uh, that has been the basis on which we've um, actually maybe every other month. Or one that's been the forum uh, in which we have conversations around kind of broadly what are you doing, what are we doing, talk about those ideas, uh, uh, but 
I will say that we did not have that in place when the decision was made to close or adjust uh, Salsa Creek or Villa, Villa Fairmont. So those weren't a part of these, I, yeah, these I, I, If I can intervene. I think part of the issue here is that we're part of a bigger system and yes. things that happen in that bigger system really impact us when, it, when we're talking about uh, entry or exit resources for psych emergency. Yes. And also for inpatient. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I and I think I would, I guess I would characterize the the model a little bit different. So what we'd be doing under the new model is we would be doing the psychiatric evaluation in the emergency room, and that we would determine whether or not people meet the criteria for continued service or discharge back into the community. Yes. And then if they meet the criteria for additional services, then we would make a decision whether they go to the crisis stabilization program or they're admitted to the inpatient program. Or they go or they go to the crisis stabilization program waiting for a bed. Thank you. You're absolutely right. I did, we have I, the triaging. And, and actually, uh, there's, there's actually one more wrinkle to it. So the model allows for the notion that someone can be admitted from psych emergency directly to inpatient. If they don't need, if we don't think that it's just a situation of continued monitoring, they actually do need longer stay. They could go from psych to inpatient. They could go to psych to crisis stabilization, so they're discharged, or they could be discharged back to the community from PES. That's that's correct. So, so for instance, when the when the decision was made to close the uh, short stay programs at the Villa Fairmont program, that that unit was it got all of its. Uh, it was a feeder off of the emergency room. That's correct. Okay, so that if people didn't need uh, uh, inpatient services or they were in an inpatient program and they could be discharged earlier, they could be we discharged to El Fairmont. And then, you know, it's it's complicated the decisions around it. But what happened is the psych emergency and the inpatient lost a major resource. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Everybody follow. All right. Uh, we'll we'll uh, try to. Try, well, this is a lot of detail, and it's only meant not to necessarily make you follow every uh, single uh, 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 string of dollars here. Uh, so, so I won't try to do that unless you have very specific questions. Uh, but really, just to give the context of the opportunity or the analysis that we did and the opportunity that we've shared with the county uh, again. So when we combine inpatient and PES, uh, in some ways, some of the billing sort of overlaps in such a way that that's necessary to kind of have a full picture. And we what we did was took six months of experience, July through December of uh, uh, fiscal year 19, uh, calendar year 19 as well, uh, took that and then uh, did the deeper dive there and then just the extrapolation. So this is not all actual four-year data. We took six months. Uh, we were able to have that for a while to look at it, and then now we've just kind of made some extrapolations of that for the opportunity. Please call 44278. So, of Labor Delivery. Please call 44278. So, uh, based off of that work, which Ishwari and Jody Copeland, who's in the room here, really uh, uh, do for us, Jody does it, uh, a, a yeoman's job doing this work. Uh, we looked at the, uh, the potential opportunity uh, loss for us on the contribution margin basis being $42 million in pretty much all of John George. And the breakdown is about $10 million, as we mentioned, in psych emergency, and 32 uh, or $31 million in inpatient uh, psych. Uh, when we look at it from the uh, basis of payers uh, for short dollar Medi-Cal, that total, so the, uh, of the 42, 25 million of it uh, uh, 
is an opportunity within uh, just that space, uh, which is basically our contract with the county. The way that our contract is structured with the county now is those rates, I think I understand it correctly, is they base them off the rates that they get from the state. Uh, they then give us a contract that has a not to exceed amount. Uh, we bill over the course of the year uh, based off of services that we deliver. Uh, and uh, we right now have, uh, we forecasted based off of the billing that we've done, that if that trajectory continued, uh, we would not actually even attain all of the amount that's in the contract. Part of the reason why we wouldn't attain all of the amount that's in the contract is based off of some of the limitations that I mentioned to you before. So not because we don't have enough cost to get there, but we're not reimbursed on a cost basis, we're reimbursed on the interim rate basis, and even with that interim rate, we sometimes get denials for certain expenses that we're billing because of things like people in P, uh, PES exceeding 20 hours, of which we have happened uh, uh, fairly routinely. So that's kind of the context. Here. Yeah, my question on that is, isn't there a process to um, reconcile that at the end of the year based on cost? Uh, yeah, so after the year ends, there is a reconciliation. So those are the interim rates. There's a reconciliation that occurs. This is an area where I am getting for, for even further afield, and I want to thank Trustee Peterson because he's been a great uh, uh, content uh, um, uh, expert for us here. Uh, helping us to better understand that reconciliation process because uh, as we understood it, uh, County Behavioral Health Services takes all of the rates, not just from us, but from other payers, does all of the reconciliation based off of the uh, uh, the expenses that they uh, can claim. There's some interaction with the state that then reconciles what the actual payments will be, and then there's a redistribution back to all the providers, of which uh, some providers, I understand, are a little bit more um, um, savvy in their ability to anticipate what uh, additional costs they would get than uh, perhaps we are and have been. And this is an opportunity for us to really work with the county to understand that, not just from the reconciliation piece, but also even to see if that presents an opportunity for those interim rates to be uh, more more favorable and robust. Uh, and and, and there, there, part of it, there may be a way to do it where we increase the short-term Medi-Cal reimbursement so, so it, it ends up not costing the county more money. It actually comes out of. Uh, 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 that, that was that was a question I had. Yeah. Is I mean these are huge numbers. Mm -hmm. How much? If, if 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 in a perfect world, if we were to change the the designation and change the billing and, and, and change all that, of that 40 million, 42 million, uh, how much of that comes from? outside sources like the state and how much would be coming from a, an adjustment and how much the county pays us through our contracts? So that's that's probably a question better for the county to answer. I, I, I wouldn't know that part of it. And I think that's part of the analysis that they would be doing, obviously, they say if we adjust the rates or we, we enhance the rates, how much of that can we flow through from the dollars that we get to the state versus how much of that would be? No, none, none, of the, none of the funds come directly from the state. Everything comes through the county. No, I didn't mean directly. Okay. Yeah. Um, Can I, I, I think, do, do, oh, I'm sorry. You let me ahead. just be really blunt. Yes. As we, as we talk about this, mm -hmm. what's the bottom line impact to the county versus the bottom line impact from state funding that, oh, yes, everything that's comes to the county. I get that. That's what I understand you to be saying. And yeah. That's why I said I, I, I honestly, don't know. I don't think I'm uh, positioned to answer that question. I do believe, and uh, uh, perhaps either Trustee Peterson or Abelita, uh, knows uh, know this, but um, there are often times where states get a lot of uh, mental health services act dollars, and they are, or, I'm sorry, counties 
uh, and they're to use them to advance not just these services but other. Pop sixty three, you mean? You know, help say, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I think there have been instances where counties, including this one, have had to give money back to the state. Uh, and so, obviously, we would um, not want to be in a situation where we're incurring costs and, uh, and having service needs uh, that uh, um, providers in the community believe are unmet and still be giving money back to the state. Yeah, and we do know the county announced on Monday that they recognized a, a change in the reserve formula so that they would be, I believe there'd be some reduction in the reserves, which allows, frees up more money to be to be put into play. But that was okay. at the, the meeting we had with the mayors. Uh, okay. and so it, it, it does, it does get a little, uh, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, no, but please. on the Mental Health Services Act, it doesn't allow for reimbursement for uh, involuntary services, okay? So the, mm -hmm. the reimbursement would be kind of in an indirect way if, if the county, for instance, decided to, and maybe they're in the process of doing that, providing more exit resources for the psych emergency and the inpatient program, then we would have less administrative days, okay, and we could bill more to Medi-Cal, mm -hmm. okay. And so, so some, of, some of it's direct, but some is indirect. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Can, 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 can I ask a very, this could be a very provocative question. So I'll tee it up that way. I run an organization that does uh, has a contract with the county for specialty mental health services. Don't mumble. I run an organization <laughs> that uh, has a contract, at least one. I think there's several contracts related to mental health, specialty mental health services. And uh, the math I do in my organization with my board is that we need to cover our cost every year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if we can't, then we, you know, uh, engage before we start losing money uh, with the, the county in a negotiation and a conversation to resolve that. Uh, and if we can't resolve it, then we hand it back to mm -hmm. the county and uh, responsibly uh, help someone, someone else take it over. I am very confused about um, our relationship here. Um, because it feels to me uh, like we have a, a culture that's been uh, set up where that isn't the dynamic. Mm -hmm. We are somehow in a relationship where we're, uh, I said a question. So are we, you know, what, where is this, we're not going to take a loss question? <laughs> yeah, um, great question. Um, uh, so I think, <laughs> I think the way I have per perceived it is that um, for organizations like ours that rely on a lot of direct cost reimbursements for services we provide and and recognize that that direct cost basis is on a basis that basically presumes because of the reimbursement levels that we will lose money and then the supplemental elements and they're so multivariable uh, there's always this uh, kind of crazy dance around why are you losing money? Is it because those things don't all ultimately add up to cover your costs? Are your costs run amok? Are you not doing everything to capture all the different recommend, uh, um, reimbursement mechanisms? It becomes this kind of multi-variable conversation before you can get to the fundamental question, which I'll get back to where you is, is like, irrespective of all of those, and I can understand the challenge with that, with somebody who would kind of own that, to say, irrespective of all of that, whatever that is, if it's not working, then we all have to figure out 
what do we do with it? Right. Do we give it back? Do we just get out of it? Do we believe that somebody else can do it better and we need to have a mm -hmm. sober conversation to say that's what it is? But but I think that's where a lot of these things and uh, uh, emergencies all over. But I would say all of the context of our relationship and I hope that con kind of the conversation and the uh, building that you all are doing uh, will, 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 will cultivate the exact uh, thinking you're doing. I recognize that that cultivation uh, requires uh, an ability to kind of have the overlay of we have an accountability to demonstrate that we are always doing as best we can, but we also have an accountability to make sure people understand that there's some real crazy complexities in all of this. And, and I think kind of the irony is we are, and I, and I say we, and I really am uh, talking about the team, pretty expert at this stuff, and even we don't get all of it. And even the experts that we go to don't get all of it. And the funny part about this is then when we try to go to people who are auditing whether we are doing this well, they end up having to ask other people too. So there really is, because of this crazy mechanism for Medi-Cal and, and uh, public financing of, of safety net healthcare, uh, there's no really, um, uh, let's say, uh, clear conversation like the one you just had, X's and O's. This is what it costs, this is what you reimburse me. I, 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 I get that, okay. and so, so my response as a trustee is I have fiduciary responsibility. Yes. I see the sort of numbers, the lost numbers here, and I think uh, no, I'm same. not being responsible if I continue mm -hmm. to uh, accept uh, budget, within budgets this sort of um, acceptance of uh, covering someone else's loss, quite right. frankly. Right. And uh, I'll just say that out loud. That's where I am with this. I, can, can, I feel the same often. I'm sorry, go ahead. Can I just say, though, that I think this is one of the reasons why pay for success has been such an important uh, direction in how things are paid for and financed. Um, mm. I believe that there are many benefactors to the fact that we keep people safely in our system and taken care of. And it is not just the county, it is businesses, it is other entities that benefit from our doing what we do. And one of the things that Pay for Success has illuminated is that if you're really successful at doing what you do, you should be identifying who are all the benefactors of your services and have them chip in. And you should cover all the costs. So that you can cover the, the cost, yes. right. And my experience just with the asthma project has been um, people are kind of eager to see you succeed. This is wonderful. You're doing a great job. Oh, but paying for it. <laughs> right. That's another story. And so I think we're in that boat. I, I think that we're doing this amazing work, and there are many people who are benefiting from this work, and somehow the conversation about who's paying for this needs to change. So I'm with you, but, but I think that's an endemic issue within public health, public you know services mm -hmm. in general. So, so one of the questions I have is, you know, if the county cannot step up and understand that they are creating the whole in which we are now presenting to them that we have, you know, this tremendous finan financial burden, who else is out there? I mean, is this something that, you know, I, I don't want to try to solve the world's problems here, but I'm just saying, is this something that we raise at a different level to just well, help us? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Not, I have to go and 
drive like a banshee, <laughs> like across town, and then be back in two hours. But what it, I, I, I want to rephrase what you just said to not the county's put us in this hole, but the way the system is structured has put us in this hole. Yeah. Our, yeah. The county's okay. our partner. Yeah. They, you know, I think that some of this can be resolved with Prop 63 dollars if we're properly moving people through our system. I think some of it, as you show here, can be resolved if we change the reimbursement rates for PES versus crisis stabilization. Some of it can be solved through billing Medicare. So it is a, a patchwork, as healthcare finance always is. Um, but we need right now to explain this patchwork, be sitting just like this with the decision makers at the county. And when I say decision makers, I don't just mean the supervisors, I mean you know, the, the, the health healthcare services, services staff, so that we have alignment on, sure. on how mm -hmm. to do this. So that again, and this has to happen in the next two to three weeks, so that at the end of August, we can propose a budget that shows significant, different, significantly different reimbursements for this critical work. I mean, we, I we have to propose that. And even yeah. if it doesn't get implemented mm -hmm. immediately, if it takes six months to implement those changes, fine. But we need to present a package that their staff are, com mm -hmm. are comfortable with because it's not creating a huge hit for the county. It's not like, oh, county, just give us $40 million. That is not what we're saying. Mm -hmm. It's help us change this reimbursement so that we all collectively benefit. But we have to make that argument so that both the, the, the healthcare services agency uh, leadership are comfortable with it and the, the county administrator's office is comfortable with it and ultimately the board of supervisors are comfortable with it because that, that's our task. Yeah. The short term as well as the larger system mm -hmm. thing. As yeah, well. but, 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 but yeah, obviously psych, psych and behavioral health is where the biggest likely short term gain for us is. Yeah. And then we can talk about the structural deficit of Medicare re Medi-Cal reimbursements over the course of the next six months. But I mean, this we, is a structural issue itself. It is, but I mean, it's a short, short one, fix. Like, right, but I think, I mean, I just want to kind of, you know, expand a little bit on, you know, I think the difference between the example that Lewis gave about his organization or any of our organizations mm -hmm. is that, you know, AHS is uniquely qualified and positioned to carry out this level of service. And so, and if that, unless yeah. I'm mistaken or unless that's not the understanding. So, meaning that the relationship is too interdependent for it to be a situation where there's a surplus or a huge reserve or a returning of money to the state on this side and then on our side oh. it's like oh well you didn't scrape up all the crumbs off the yeah, table it's, a very different it's and right. so i think and I, I think that's the part that needs to change yeah. within the relationship is can we have a meeting of the minds that we're in this interdependent relationship that we would like to continue doing it there isn't a desire right. to have a new contractor do it that this is how we want to move forward and therefore it's really just us doing a better job of spreading the peanut butter you yep. know what i mean yep. and so but i think that is a structure thing because right now the yeah. way it's set up is like a like any other CBO contract yeah, it sounds right. like to me like right. well you didn't do all your claiming you're gonna take a loss and that's hugely problematic when we are the ultimate safety net of the entire county for mental health yeah I agree with that frame and the difference the distinction that you're making uh, so we can't do what my organization right. does in this case. I mean, we could, but that but would be disastrous. what we need to do, yeah. yeah, it would be disastrous. And there needs to be a level of collaboration that's off the charts here. Um, but I think we can say it's our fiduciary responsibility to cover our costs to provide this sort of service. And that's our operating principle number one. Mm -hmm. 
and then we'll go from there. But I think that should be a mutual it's a, I think it's, to get us there. I think I mean, we I think have a mutual the, interest right. in that. And right. I think the county should feel the same way, that AHS should not take a loss to provide critical safety net services in Psyche. Yes, unless it was we were doing something wrong or we were, you know, I mean, that's different, right? Sure. Um, but it's a capacity issue across the county that we have that I think we want to solve together. I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I, I'd say to that end, I mean, one of the things that we, we we're sensitive to but also want to advance is this notion that uh, I feel that the success and one of the uh, big uh, things that helps safety net organizations like ours out is that we aren't exclusively inpatient. Uh, inpatient areas are where a lot of costs are and quite honestly a lot of uh, hospitalizations and emergency room visits are because upstream care has failed. It's either not been robust enough or it didn't you know, meet the needs of somebody to keep them well, uh, whether medically or behaviorally, uh, obviously outside of accidents or crises. Um, but we don't want, so I think it would be a detriment to AHS if we are only viewed as you're the people on the back end. Uh, you, we have expertise, obviously, upstream as well, and we need to be collaborating, whether through direct delivery or coordination in partnership with the county, and this is where role um, um, uh, sort of clarity comes into play to make sure that the totality of all of it works and is sustainable, uh, but not looking at it in siloed or piecemeal fashion. So I, I hope uh, that we're on the trajectory uh, uh, that's consistent with how you all are, are, are uh, or what you're espousing here. Uh, in terms of next steps, that's exactly where we are. But what I am taking both from some of the comments yesterday and today is that um, uh, we want to try to move this as quickly as possible. It took us a while to uh, finish our analysis and get the data to the county. Uh, they, um, they've had the report, uh, the first report since June 25th. The second one uh, about uh, two weeks ago now, almost, I believe. Uh, and now we're waiting uh, for them to do their work to come back to us. But I will take this and uh, reach out to uh, Colleen and uh, see if we can kind of have more um, um, more sort of timely uh, 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 interaction and uh, collaboration to be able to um, drive the budget discussion at least uh, as, as much as possible. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to uh, finalize a contract in that time frame. I, I will be pushing for that, but it, it sort of depends on where they are and where we are as well. So we'll, we'll keep you posted on that. But that's kind of where, where we are now. Uh, we have, she's actually uh, reached out to me because when we had the discussions and we sort of, uh, they impressed upon us, uh, we don't support or we'd ask that you don't do this short term thing. Uh, and we want to have a longer range discussion. She wanted to start those discussions now and I respectfully ask that we focus on this uh, since this is uh, so time uh, uh, sensitive and will inform our budget. Uh, but immediately thereafter that we should have this broader discussion. And that's part of uh, kind of some of the other things you've heard, uh, which may include uh, recognizing the need to maybe leverage additional spaces as things become open or things move around to consider whether we put additional services on different campuses or in the community and things like that. So you'll hear more about that, but that's more longer range than, than the more pressing issue. So we are hoping that both the Medicare commercial payer analysis as well as the short toil, they, we are waiting for them to do that. Or are we doing the analysis for the, we, well, this We've is ours, our this analysis. is ours, but yeah. the Medicare and the commercial we're still working on the commercial. You want to speak to where we are in this part of it? I mean, the Medicare is what it is. Uh, we know that as a structure we currently have for PES, we cannot bill Medicare as a CSU. So that's where it is. 
So then the strategy becomes how do we deal with the Medicare patients that come in through our doors. Right. So we are waiting to hear something from them on both of these issues, at yes. least in, yes. in, during this budget period as we are yes. even if there's no like contract or anything, but at least some numbers and what that means and what you know what the county is thinking about. That's our goal, and we'll try to accelerate that. Okay. okay? We recognize they have other priorities, not yeah, just I, us. I, on this conversation, I agree with it. It's a great, robust discussion on the structural. I, 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 w I hope someone will infuse confidence in me. I don't have optimism that we'll be able to acquire data which will take me to the next level of decision making on this mm -hmm. within two to three weeks. I, I, so I, so I, I see us in the same position here uh, as, as we come into August. So someone make me f help make me feel differently? I think your confidence is, uh, or your, your uh, lack of optimism, your, 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 your <laughs> temperate optimism is founded, I would say. Uh, again, because, I mean, let's recognize, uh, again, they are county, they have a lot of priorities, Others, not, yeah. not, not, not just, just AHS. They are expressing, obviously, a, 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 a sense of uh, understanding of the urgency here and the, uh, the desire to help this move along. Uh, uh, but uh, it takes, these things often take time. Uh, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll do our best and we'll keep you posted. Of course you will. And we'll see where, I guess we'll see where we get. Is, is yeah, I, I would think if, if we have a dialogue with them and we have an understanding that this is a joint problem and a joint issue that has to be resolved, we're not, I agree we're not going to get it done in August, but yeah. I think we, we can start down the right path. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll briefly this. I know we have to go into closed session. Um, the, the rest of these were just the, um, the um, spreadsheets to kind of show you how we came up with these numbers and broke them down into inpatient and uh, uh, um, PES and then by payer. So you can see the numbers reflect, that reflect the analysis that you just received. Uh, the last one was um, uh, we were focused on these two areas, but uh, uh, Trustees Banerjee and, and, and Hernandez said they thought the board also wanted to just be reminded what else, and we talked to you about these things, but we will just want to kind of just call them out, just a quick slide, uh, and that is that uh, we are working on urgent care where we're converting our same-day clinic into uh, walk-in urgent care, so changing that model and hoping that our sort of the analysis suggests that a lot of the left without being seen volume in the ED uh, uh, is the opportunity that we would have to capture that uh, because of it being uh, more walk-in and scheduled. We also I mean, there's uh, additional analysis, and Trustee Abuleta was uh, part uh, of informing this that same-day clinic uh, creates this, uh, uh, it has it at least philosophically, and I think not practically, but it's in the ether, created this issue that uh, patients um, uh, would have to then change their uh, uh, primary care home if they weren't with us to be seen in urgent care, which is not what we want, and we want it to be a resource for the community, so there's some opportunity there. So we are, uh, uh, we are projecting that uh, our conversion of this nature, which actually even involves a physical relocation, uh, would uh, net us an additional uh, 400000 over the course of the year, and that's for the time of the year that it would be in place. We're looking at endoscopy cases that uh, um, probably Trustee Bouquet could speak about. Uh, I have, yeah, I have comments on item two when you finish. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, but 
we have forecast in partnership with the Department of Medicine uh, that the opportunity to increase endoscopy cases over the year uh, could net us on the net uh, uh, side an additional 36,000. Uh, um, uh, for organization, 3% increase in primary care volume, which I referenced earlier. Uh, that's across uh, um, all of our uh, wellness centers. Uh, converting our subacute uh, beds at Fairmont into SNP beds uh, changes the cost calculation as well as the, uh, largely because of the staffing, uh, uh, because there's six beds there that uh, have a different staffing ratio than the SNP beds and actually present some challenging in terms of utilizing the beds. Uh, so if we convert them to SNP, that would be then consistent with the other beds there that we foresee an opportunity of about half a million dollars there. This is in the urgent care clinic? No, no, no. This is uh, the subacute beds that are at Fairmont. We have subacute beds at Alameda, too. They are not included here. It's just at Fairmont uh, uh, Hospital. Additional 5% increase in outpatient women's services is part of what you heard Dr. Smith mention earlier. And then uh, two day, uh, uh, additional two clinic days in optometry services, uh, driven by the need there, which uh, presents the capacity, and we think the uh, uh, financial impact could be another uh, quarter Quarter where, where are those provided? The optometry services, I think, are here. I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't speak uh, with great confidence, but I'll, I can figure that out. Actually, you know what? I actually think they're uh, one of the wellness Able centers. Able 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 or, or, or um, um, Eastmont. Uh, so, but I can, I can find out for you. Yeah. Sure. And these were just a, the questions of me, but we've had a lot of discussions, so I don't know if there's anything else really you want to add. Yeah. Rusty. Um, can you, oh, yes, can you go back one yeah. slide? Sorry about that. Uh, so item number two, look at item number two, $36,000. That's practically rounding error. So one might ask one there, and I, I think this is just an opportunity to discuss interfacing between finance and the clinical providers. I'll say um, there was, let me say this is a great opportunity for our organization. I, as the division chief of GI, was never directly involved in these discussions. And part of these uh, occurred as what was determined to be a deficit from the GI services, which were, which were related to something existing in the budget, which we didn't have. So when they came back, they said that we needed to do 2,000 more procedures and, and, and 71 more endoscopy cases. When, they, when it was realized by the, by, by the business and finance team that actually that we didn't even have that provider, they took that out, but they just left the 71 cases in. And then, and then it was, it, it, uh, I was approached and said, can you just do these 71 more cases? And I said, yeah, you know, that's, that's an extra case or and a half per week. We're already kind of to the limit, but we can. Again, what, as I'm speaking as a division chief here. There's, there's, there's opportunity, and I, I'm, I'm giving the nice version here, opportunity to work together between finance, business, and actually the clinical services. Because again, I was never directly involved in these discussions, which is, which is an opportunity. So, so I appreciate you saying that and saying it in the, in the diplomatic manner you did. I, it's actually news to me. Uh, um, I would expect, and this is for me then to follow up with the team, uh, that uh, as we mentioned, uh, we have dyads that are between the clinical and administrative leaders. We have that as as sort of as 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 deep into the organization as possible, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation all the way down to yeah, I get uh, every it. level. But what I would say is my expectation, uh, and this is what I would want to corroborate, is that where we have the conversation, in this case largely with the department leaders and their dyad, 
would be that the department leader would involve you in that uh, conversation. So I would, I, uh, my question would be to the chair, why is it that the chief, whose service that we are uh, talking about here, wasn't included in the discussion? Yeah, there's a, there's a different story which we can talk about with that, with the department chair, but I'll leave that. Because it, it, it's in stark difference, it's $36,000, sure. right? It just stands out different. It, so yeah, it's sort it's of- a similar process for each one of them. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's remnant it, it, of, of something which would have been a bigger footprint which was a walk back. Mm -hmm. So help us understand, is it more than $36,000 if we did 71 additional endoscopy cases? So that, that part I can't exactly say on actually how much we capture. Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, each procedure is roughly twenty-five to three twenty-five hundred to 3000 bucks. Our capture rate's around 17 to 20 cents. So that uh -huh. I see where you get around 500 bucks procedure there. So that part, and I, I would love to be in more more involved okay. with that with that discussion okay. as, as a division chief, not as a board member. So I'll, I'll just I'll just say we have a lot of opportunity. And that, and, and Dovecchio, you're, you're you're right. Uh, you know we, we should follow process through the department chair and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was an urgency on, on that particular condition, which a decision was just being made. I was called on the phone call to make a decision right there. So the timeliness of how the decision process was probably the key the key factor in there. And then the last couple of questions, it leads very nicely into the next thing about communication. Yeah, well, number two for me. Primary. Well, this raises a question for me. In, in the current situation that we're in, I would not be looking at anything that doesn't have a minimum $250,000 savings. Because thinking of this, and how much effort it takes to dive deeply and look for the return. I, not a, I'm not, this is not a, meant to be a slight on that figure. Oh, it's no. more for me yeah, how to be strategic <laughs> about where we put our time and energy. If, if something's going to create $250,000 in savings, I'm in. $36,000, I'm not. I, I, I mean, it's, it's great to see that, but I feel like we are needing to do more than just, you know, uh, save ourselves by throwing buckets of water off the ship. We need to solve the leak. We need to solve the absolute, you know, uh, problem in the engine room or wherever it may be. And so. So can I? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'd love yeah. to hear other yeah, comments because I have some thoughts as I well. I agree with your gen general premise. Um, but but if it's a thousand thirty six Ks across you. the system, okay. then it matters. And I just took this as a you know this is a, this is a just deck, a short, right? so we're short getting list of yeah, examples. That's exactly what I was Please, okay. Yeah, I would say that's but I get actually, your point. I mean, this I, I get your point to too. But I would say it's actually I'm glad we're talking about it because it's actually a somewhat uh, um, it will be a somewhat dangerous notion to to permeate throughout the organization. At a certain level, and this actually somewhat speaks to uh, uh, Dr. Bukat's uh, uh, feedback as well. At a certain level in the organization, I dare say at the board level, I, 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 I'm actually somewhat reticent to even be bringing you things that are $100,000 when we have a billion dollar organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I actually would ask that you appreciate from my vantage point, that's also, I have to kind of 
uh, curate what sort of things I do deep dives on because mm -hmm. if I'm doing deep dives on a $36,000 thing or a $50,000 right. I that, may be that, missing that's always yeah. the big bucket yeah. 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 but everyone else needs to and they Understood. do add up so, so these were just examples for you and they cover the gamut but it was intended to show you we are looking all the way through and actually speaks to not just the next topic on communication but even the latter conversation about what sorts of things do we do to engage all of the organization to say what are opportunities yeah. in your area and we don't want people thinking oh that's only going to save a couple thousand dollars thanks but no thanks don't waste my time right. uh, but it does speak to one a culture uh, two um, uh, this is not just these are and we're presenting them from a budgetary perspective but it also is a um, access and a um, um, service uh, a vantage point here that we're also addressing that doesn't necessarily surface. Uh, actually, we'll speak to a lot of part about the intersection of quality and, and financing and other stuff that we're not servicing in the context of looking at it through the lens of a budget. So, mm -hmm. so I appreciate the context. I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't take particular pride in bringing you a list of things that talk about things that are, don't have enough zeros. Uh, but I want you to know that we're we're dealing with uh, um, as much of these as we can. And I want I want to really second what you said because sometimes it's during these very lean times that people are forced to relook at how you do business and so it it is like structural changes or it's new innovations or anything new like sometimes that change happens only yeah. when you're kind of pushed into doing it so everything right now if it's happening at least the discussion part what gets um, implemented will be, you know, what is feasible, what's doable, but at least it's being considered is a good thing for the system to be looking at. I, I appreciate the dialogue between Trustees Hernandez and Trustees Chiquan because right in the middle is, I think, principle number one is no savings is too small in this organization. Mm -hmm. And number two, we need to do the calculus of how much energy it takes to extract that savings because yes. sometimes it might cost too much. If our CEO is looking at $36,000, that's probably that's a very expensive look, <laughs> you know, and, and so, so I, and, I, and I, I, I think we continued for our purpose. And I know that, you know, a couple thousand here and a couple thousand there all add up to millions, right? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's just, you know, right. no. I'm trying to prioritize the whole spectrum. As are we. And, and I think all points well taken. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. Are we almost please. done with it? We're, yes. uh, we're done with this. I want to recommend yeah. a break. Okay. Uh, we also need to go into closed session, I think is what you want. Are we going to do the C2 part? Oh, it's okay. the, uh, so that's the thing, is that do we finish the other part and then go into break, but that might be about an hour, right? We Maria? can do what we want. No, I'm asking Maria. <laughs> uh, the, the C2, yeah. we take a, let's take a five-minute break we take right ten, now? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Can we now? do that and then yes. restructure a little bit here? So, yeah. Ten-minute recess? Yes. Get started with agenda item number C2. Yes, so the board met in closed session. Uh, they uh, considered uh, matters presented by the labor negotiator, took no action. Thank you. So I think we'll take public comments now. Um, Carol Barazzi, do you want to come over? You're okay with that? Yeah, 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 no. If you want to keep running the meeting for a minute, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just got, you know, it's possible. Three minutes? Three minutes, yes. Good afternoon. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you for waiting. Oh, we sure. realize our agenda is a little off today. Um, my name is Carol Barazzi. I'm an RN. I work in the operating room at San Leander Hospital. I have been there for 32 years. And I'm here again to speak again on behalf of the San Leandro nurses and the Alameda Hospital nurses. 
Um, I know you had a report in closed sessions about negotiations, but I wanted to tell you um, the negotiators have come to the table with a complete overhaul of the contracts. We've, we've mentioned that before. They've refused to give us their priorities in terms of what they feel they need, and they have told us that everything is a priority, which makes it impossible to, well, almost impossible to work with. Um, they talk about the language. They did a lot of language cleanup. Um, language is important to them. It's important to us as well. And in some cases, the language cleanup had uh, takeaways embedded in it. This kind of bargaining is not constructive by any stretch of the imagination, especially in the current HS climate. The bad budget decisions made by the administration, coupled with inappropriate or lack of billing, should not fall on the backs of the patients or the workforce that care for them. So we would, uh, I, I don't know what kind of report you got, but I'm telling you what we feel is going on. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. okay. is, was that it? Uh, we have one, and this was related to that. So let's move on to our um, agenda item, and I'm going to ask Trustee Hernandez to facilitate. Oh. Um, we do have Adela here. You're going to present the review of communications related to um, the operating budget. So, so C2, that's where we are. C2. Okay. No, actually, uh, thank you, Trustee Bandit. Yes. Uh, thank you, Trustee I don't have a, uh, a presentation uh, per se or slides for this particular one. Uh, what you received was a, a memo uh, that we prepare. Uh, that was not designed to be exhaustive, but to be uh, robust in describing pursuant to um, uh, the request from the trustees uh, to get a sense of what type of communication uh, has been had uh, both internally or has occurred internally and externally uh, uh, with respect to the budget in particular. Uh, what we provided for you was a memo that, um, again, um, looked at the types of communication, the length, um, uh, and, and you'll see that the length goes back to when we start our budgeting process, which is effectively in January. Uh, you'll recall this particular January we had early signals that we may have some uh, challenges. I think we kind of knew that more around February or so, but, um, uh, but uh, what the memo was described to show you was um, that there's been a lot of communication, uh, that those communications have taken on multiple modalities, so both written and verbal uh, communications, both large group and uh, small group convenings and uh, those sort of things, uh, communications that have uh, been led or uh, facilitated by a lot of different leaders in the organization. Um, a lot of the town halls and other things you'll see just by pursuant to a construct that we um, developed as an organization uh, are done by other senior leaders who report to me. Uh, uh, the, um, uh, additional clarification is many of those meetings I actually attend to. I do not, uh, in full disclosure, attend all of the town halls, uh, but I'm sitting there and I'm there to be a part of the Q&A and or to add additional uh, commentary. And I will say, actually, uh, um, uh, a few trustees, particularly Trustee Jensen, has been to one or two of those as well, uh, uh, as I'm aware. So um, those meetings, small group meetings, um, uh, meetings where they are particularly about 
the entirety of the budget or a particular matter. Uh, for example, what's not on there is uh, as we got closer to the end of the year or the end of the budget period and needed to produce a budget. Uh, um, uh, as you know, we had the uh, cuts that we talked about this morning. Uh, we talked about the alternatives to them this morning, but we had those big cuts there and that required or resulted in a series of uh, discussions with all of the chiefs of staff and then uh, specific uh, multidisciplinary meetings with those departments uh, that were impacted where we had discussions about kind of how we got to this point, uh, what we were doing to uh, communicate um, uh, our desire that we move in a different direction, but what um, um, imperative we were facing uh, and, uh, and really working with folks uh, not just on the plans that you heard about this morning, but working through kind of, as you may imagine, the emotional um, uh, angst and anxiety that was produced just by virtue of these pieces coming forward. So again, uh, the, the memo is just uh, done, uh, hopefully, to address your questions of tell, tell us how often you're communicating to people, how much have you been communicating, what have you been communicating, who's doing that communication, just to give you a sense of that. And, what I understand, and I want to turn it over to Trustee Hernandez, was that the conversation would sort of surround um, uh, maybe more more of those technical pieces and to offer some uh, uh, thoughts and uh, ideas and feedback going forward, but maybe also even uh, to talk about uh, from uh, the board perspective uh, as a public board, how then um, uh, we may consider con uh, uh, sort of technical or uh, uh, um, uh, sort of tactical tweaks to how the interaction between the administration and the board and, and then the broader conversation around the budget or other matters might be uh, uh, amended to facilitate uh, robust clarity around the communications and a sense that those communications are meeting the needs of the organization uh, if that's the sense that we, uh, we feel. So, so I, I hope I captured that, but I want to turn it over to Trustee Hernandez to yeah. correct that if I um, I, I think there's a couple of things that are going on with this particular discussion for our agenda. One is to understand how you know different um, parts of the staff are hearing about the shortfall, the budget shortfall. One was to just understand sort of the broader um, you know approach that might be used. Um, I think another subset was how do we get the staff engaged in actually helping with problem solving? Um, and so could you just say a little bit more about that latter piece before we then start? Yeah. Uh, so that one we do have a presentation on. That's, a, the, it's, I think, the next to the last agenda item. So okay. uh, it's, a, it's a lot more robust. Uh, uh, we're talking about kind of some of the things we do now in terms of uh, process improvement uh, uh, and soliciting ideas from um, uh, more frontline managers and staff and how we uh, process that and then an idea uh, based off of the request as we understood it and feedback that we've gotten from the staff and the board on how we might amend that. So that's a, uh, a, a, a big uh, presentation later this okay. afternoon and a discussion that we can okay. have on that part. Okay. Uh, I c if I may, yeah, uh, uh, I would say um, uh, one of the things that I think we uh, heard a little bit this morning uh, and a little bit yesterday was uh, um, uh, some concerns about how uh, elements of the budgeting process uh, may, uh, there are opportunities in terms of uh, 
how certain uh, part or parts of the organization are engaged. And I'll just say for the sake of communication, the example yesterday that uh, we had staff from one area that are uh, facing a potential consolidation say that uh, since they've been talking to you, uh, uh, the board, in response to our communications that they had not heard from administration. Uh, and, uh, and that I corroborated, which was data that I have because I wasn't involved in the conversations, that there have been a series of meetings with leadership in this area, including as early as yesterday morning, uh, but that the clarity is like, uh, what do we mean by administration? And in this case, what was cleared, or at least what I believe uh, was additional clarity was by administration, this particular group meant me and the CEO, and uh, that they hadn't talked to us specifically about this matter. Uh, that is kind of this issue of like, how do we make sure that given the complexity of the organization and all the many dynamics we're dealing with, that leadership, and we've been taking uh, the steps as an organization to say, we have business units, we have business unit leaders, and the leadership for the organization is not by people who sit in an office uh, somewhere. It is uh, multiple layers of folks uh, uh, who are all engaged, but to different degrees and in different contexts. And all of that kind of percolates up uh, also to different degrees. So, so there will probably, in an organization of 4,000 uh, plus individuals, always be this tension around how often uh, um, um, leadership as defined by kind of a smaller subset versus a larger subset are engaging with frontline staff. And that's a dynamic I think we'll continue to try to uh, um, balance. But at the same time, we want, part of our thinking is the balance has to be necessarily that five people can't be the leadership for, uh, or viewed as the sole leadership for an organization that's complex. It has to be robust and we have to do everything we can do to position those other parts of the organization to be viewed as site-based or business unit-based leaders that are uh, a, a natural extension of those five individuals. I have a question. Do you have a, a trigger that says, okay, in this situation, I mean, it should be the executive leadership team. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to end this service line or I'm going to uh, you know, consolidate this unit. There will be job loss, therefore, I shouldn't leave it up to the manager or the director level, but pick it up to the ELT. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if you do, but. So, so I, 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 I don't have a, um, let me say, I don't have a, a formula that, that, that lays that out prescriptively. What I do do, just as a matter of practice, is appreciate from, uh, you know, again, their layers. So there's the business unit leaders, and then there's the C-suite. Uh, which includes myself. And so uh, there are times when, if it's a business unit matter, uh, that then I will make sure from the various C-suite executive that they are actively involved. And then I sort of use some of the interplay there to figure out if that then requires my involvement as well. So taking it out of the budget context, for example, um, oftentimes, um, I'll just use one example for the same area, actually. I mentioned this yesterday. We had an untoward event where a patient climbed through a, uh, actually, I don't think this person was a patient of ours, but a person who was uh, living on the campus or um, uh, this around the homelessness situation oh, climbed through right. a window and uh, attacked one of the uh, staff members who happened to be one of the leaders of this area. Um, that is not a situation where, for me, I would say, um, you know, talk to the business unit leader and talk to someone and let me know. It's like, somebody has been assaulted, uh, if I'm available and I can adjust my schedule, I'm there. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm there to hear the grievances, not just about the incident, but what contributes to it. Um, in a budgetary context, um, uh, I would say um, the closure of a program um, um, 
I'm going to meetings talking to staff about them. Uh, um, okay. Closure. Consolidation, perhaps not, because now I'm trying to get a sense of how much have uh, how much of this is really uh, uh, a, a situation that can be worked through uh, through multiple conversations and, and uh, clarifications uh, versus then have we spilled over to something that uh, uh, that is beyond that purview. It's not. It's it's more art than science. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. say in this case, the art part of it is now I'm of the mind that I have to get involved in this conversation uh, because I don't feel that. Um, um, that the messaging uh, to you and to other officials uh, that leadership is not involved is a fair uh, message. Um, at the same time, what I have to balance is if I do that every time, then that will become the mechanism by which, yeah, the precedent that, that, well, it, that they all become that. And if every time you propose a change or your uh, management proposes a change, it causes a firestorm either here or at the Board of Supervisors, and that firestorm successfully stops you from running the organization, that I realize that that's a bad precedent. Like, there has to be some filter. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I recognize it's an art, not a science. Thank you. Yeah. So as part of this discussion on communication, what I was going to try and bring up here was more guidance and just brainstorming around what kind of communication going forward are we expecting of that senior leadership team? Because it, it may not be Del Vecchio, it may be others on the C-suite. But for example, I, I looked at this um, handout, and one of the things, help us understand, uh, Del Vecchio, mm -hmm. how often are you doing the town halls at this point? I know that you don't personally have to do each one, but how often is the town hall? Terry, step out of your room. Um, I believe, do we do them quarterly, or is it? Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, the town halls. So, is I, that the employee forum? Uh, yeah, the forums. Yeah, yeah. So it's twice a year now, and then um, when we do them twice a year, it's about eight or nine or so of them each time across the three, facilities. Four, right. So we move them to different eight. campuses. Yeah. 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 That you okay. did all in March. Yeah. Right. And the next series are coming up somewhere in the late fall, I believe. So, so this is the this is an opportunity for just two things. Um, one is sometimes uh, when an organization has that kind of a crisis that everybody has to be on the same page about, we need to be in agreement on what are the two or three talking points. You know, uh, they have to be consistent across not just the C-suite, but even the board. So we should have that conversation. What are those three talking points about what's about to happen? We've sent out, as a board, uh, a statement. We've done something to say, you know, we're committed to making everything work here, not have to lose services and so on. But I'm concerned that in terms of the conversations inside among staff, that we're still seeing gaps. And some of that comes up in the conversations that you know emerge as part of the comments. And so what can we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? I, I'm of the opinion that the town halls, uh, you're calling them uh, forums, forums um, probably twice a year uh, is not enough. However, I also don't believe that you need to be the one you know, going to 18 events uh, every quarter. Mm -hmm. Is there some way, can you think of some way to help the senior leadership team 
uh, use a forum uh, quarterly, mm -hmm. and maybe you have a recorded message, and then mm -hmm. others would you know follow through and take feedback and take input. Uh, thank you for the the question and, and the prompting. Um, you know, again, uh, uh, the the memo doesn't cover all the different communications that happen. So there are a lot of uh, things that the business unit leaders are already doing uh -huh. along those sorts of lines. Now, whether um, I would say, I would say on a personal level, uh, um, I. I believe that I can work on communication. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to improve the frequency and the cadence of communication for the organization, not just in periods of crisis, but, but in general. Um, uh, I am thinking about some ideas of regard. The one you just mentioned is one of the ones that's in sort of rotation right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a few others I, I don't necessarily want to share because I might commit myself to them. Um, but um, uh, the short answer is that um, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at that um, because even with the town halls, it takes careful coordination so that everybody gets the same message. And often, as you can imagine, those eight meetings happen over the course of sometimes two or three weeks. And mm -hmm. some of the things that we're talking about sure. change during that time. Sure. But we're trying to give people a consistent message and uh, keep everybody on the same page. So. No, I think it's because no, you're holding it. There you yeah. go. I, I feel like I'm going to start chewing the mic at some point. <laughs> I know, it's funny. Because I'm not having that problem. My mic is yeah. picking me up. Yeah, yeah. You know. I, sh I feel like I should sing. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Um, right. Is that better? He, he's I've been listening. No, you can't. Yeah, Jeff's think, so if it's dynamic where, where the microphone right. is, it's harder for Dave to calibrate. He, he, needs, yeah. he needs a consistent distance. For all of us. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and now you can do the Barry White imitation. This go. is this is intoxicating. I'm just kidding. Yeah, sort of sounding like voice. You like no, dude, it doesn't sound that good. Uh, uh, yeah. So uh, short answer. Uh, I'll speak more into the mic, but um, uh, we are thinking about those things. But I'm here to hear your ideas. Okay. So if that's one of them, I, I so so I think we should brainstorm a little bit and just give yeah. this time to give some feedback. Uh, personally, uh, uh, just two suggestions. One is making use of um, uh, almost like a podcast or video uh, sharing of what's going on that can be distributed through internal channels in whatever ways uh, Terry and your team can do. I think those are, that's one way to cut down on your wear and tear. Um, but nothing beats having concrete, you know, communication and and people being able to sit down and ask questions. Um, and so even if you do record something and it gets distributed, I'd, I'd like to see that um, staff have a chance to do Q&A mm -hmm. about the really difficult um, issues that they see taking place and that those questions uh, be answered by a member of the senior leadership team. And, and so I'm just opening this up. Yeah, I, yeah. I, have, I have a couple thoughts. Uh, I, I'm really struggling with this in my own executive role, so I'll say that first. It, it's like marriage, so it's that complex and that hard to do, quite frankly. So one thought that I, one of the practices I'm trying to put in place now is be very intentional with uh, the rest of leadership in my organization about what our objective is around communication. So it's the talking mm -hmm. points, but it's, mm -hmm. for example, uh, the uh, example of folks that said they didn't hear from um, leadership yesterday, and they had, 
Well, that's their experience. And so checking in with, there was some meetings. What were, you know, what was the understanding of what those meetings were? Would be a question I would want to ask leadership. Mm -hmm. Why did people not experience it as being the, the meeting that, right. uh, that was supposed to happen or the meetings that were supposed to happen? And um, so and maybe those meetings can be much more intentional in terms of this is the meeting to do mm -hmm. X. And there's uh, another thing that I'm trying to just is to get uh, my leadership to slow down and not just have an agenda applied to people, but to listen mm -hmm. and to put that into the agenda of any meeting where uh, at the least, at the very least, at the end of the meeting, you're checking out with, is there anything else you think needs to be said that you want us to hear? Mm -hmm. uh, so those are some broad ideas. I will also say cautionary, cautionary note, another thing I'm learning this year, my organization does uh, uh, affordable housing, and that's not something a lot of people like to have in their neighborhoods. I get yelled at uh, for a living, is what I tell my wife. And... Um, one of the things I've noticed is uh, even though we do a lot of community engagement on a project, invariably people say, we never came to them. Mm -hmm. We'll go knock on people's doors directly and talk directly to people, but they didn't feel like they ever got heard. And so I think it's incumbent on us, a cautionary tale, I think, uh, that we're very careful about um, judging, coming to a conclusion about people saying they were not heard that it's, in my experience, very complex. So two messages. I think we could do a better job um, with engaging people and having them feel and be heard. And in our roles, we gotta be careful about uh, jumping to mm -hmm. conclusions when people com complain about not being heard. Right. Yeah. Right. And I would say exactly like you said, it's an art, not a science. So right. for this specific group, like I think uh, when you have a central site and a satellite site, often just the physical distance between mm -hmm. that makes people feel sure. like we are the last ones to know yep. about things. Yep. We don't know, and it, that might that's there that that becomes the perception. And I know that when I moved from a central site to a, uh, to a satellite site, I felt that way. I was the part of the group that says, "No, no, we are doing great with communications." And I thought, "Oh my gosh!" Like the kind of things that you can go two floors up and talk to somebody and be able to do that, that doesn't happen. So I think a little bit more intentional about especially things that might be off-site and then the perceptions from our vantage and theirs, what's consolidation to us is closure to them mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's from their vantage. So mm -hmm. it is, you know, those kinds of Great things point. and then their chief might not be even in their site, yeah. like their position leader is actually based somewhere else. That's so that too. So like it's all those compounding little things that plus we're passing on the twenty four ever twenty four seven nature of a lot right. of what we do right. too. So right, right. it's yes. easier to get stuff done from <clears throat> nine to five, not just with us and the robustness of uh, the infrastructure, but also with external partners. Right. And after, after five o'clock and on weekends, when we're open and holidays, a lot of other stuff isn't. Right. And that communication is a lot so one other thing about communication, I also would like us to think about how we're going to address rumors. 
Yeah. So, um, when yes. <laughs> when I worked at one organization where there was uh, basically a lot of mergers taking place, we actually created a. This was in the era where it wasn't computerized, so we actually had a board in the lunchroom, and people could pin on it any rumor that they heard on a three by five card. <laughs> And then the management would put a card next to it with what is the actual truth. Wow. And I just want to say that that simple, low-tech manner of responding to rumors created a really different way of communicating because people would say, have you checked the rumor board? Because I heard that, but have you checked? Right? And it was just an opportunity to correct yeah. misinformation, right? Huh. Yeah, someone yeah. like that. Right. So I think we... I'd be concerned about uh, patients and families <laughs> being uh, airing our, our laundry well, in such a way that we were non-patient person. I don't know that we would use cards again. Oh, okay. We might have to use an intranet uh, ah. environment for that. But, but my point is hmm. we need the three talking points and we also need to be prepared for the rumor mill that will emerge. Mm. So I want to just challenge us a little bit to think what's available internally that most employees can access. Is there, is there an intranet that uh, yes. is yes. accessible? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, and if, if I could just, yeah, I think it's a wonderful idea. I, just to build off of it, um, you know, one, of the, one of the things I did in the neighborhood process again was to respond to misconceptions but then to try to always give some constructive way right. to be involved or get more information right. or something that was a give right. uh, at the same time. So it's not just a, no, you're wrong, you're rumored, no, no, no. You know, this it? is a bad yeah. rumor, but it's a, uh, you know, oh, and here's where you can go and get more information about the budget, for example. Right, right. Okay, thank you. So I know um, in-person communication is obviously best but you know, there's no question that your memos are read by staff. Um, I, <laughs> I know that. I mean, I mean, you know, and news travels fast. So I mean, I think. So not to say that you need to do a memo for everything, but um, and I realized that it was the content possibly that made the news travel fast. But but I just wonder if written communication coming directly from you to all staff when it's appropriate could also be something that could be d done a little bit more frequently mm -hmm. into yes. your earlier comment, you know, not only in times of, you know, where there's difficult news, but, but when there's progress or, um, and, and kind of sharing, well, you know, other members of the leadership team have been doing X, Y, and Z so that people also start to understand mm -hmm. that leadership is not just you personally, but that there's other people and that you are talking to them frequently. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Other ideas? Hard work, complex stuff. Um, I, I always kind of like guidelines. So uh, a while back, I was taught the rule of sevens on communication. And the rule of sevens includes seven times, mm -hmm. seven different ways, and, and, and communicate it so that a seven-year-old would be able to understand what you're saying. And, and uh, the seven times is very, very hard. Uh, but but, but it, it, it does ultimately, in my opinion, provide some clarity. Part of my job. Yeah, my day job is is often conveying very complex medical information to people uh, in a very very short amount of time. So I can't do it seven times, but but teach back often is very helpful. So one can imagine in that meeting, uh, clarifying, you do understand that this is a meeting with the senior administration, 
Do you? <laughs> right. And 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 then at the end of the meeting, uh, uh, you know, as I said to the patient, can you tell me what we talked about today in three bullet points or so? Mm -hmm. So maybe there there is some methodology that we can apply to communication, and that that is all over the place. But uh, keeping messages simple, doing it different ways and multiple times, because broadcasting is not communication. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, no, I I use like. Uh, you know, I just do direction, alignment, commitment, and I just say, like, when we come in, like, what's our purpose? Like, what's the direction? Are we, like, agreed on that this is kind of the vision? Or this is where we are trying to go. And then the alignment is, like, by the end of that, everyone kind of knows, like, w w what my role is, what I'm doing. Like, I, I get my piece in the picture and things, and then later on just as a closing commitment like are we committed where are we on the commitment like fist to five sometimes mm -hmm. or whatever it is mm -hmm. to say like this is where we are we, are. Mm -hmm. we don't like then this, these are our next steps so just because sometimes you come out and you think that of course i said the direction everybody knew where we were going and Everybody has a different idea of what they right. thought the goal or the purpose of that meeting was. Everyone. So, yeah, and then right. the alignment too, like they don't know what's who, you know, what the role is and which what each person is so that mm -hmm. the direction, alignment and commitment is something that I can one of the things, if, if I may trust you, Hernandez, uh, oh, we, I was just going to bring something up, but I want to cut off the feedback. No. Um, Thank you. Uh, one of the things uh, I, I hope we could discuss is uh, in some of the committee meetings and uh, even in the full board meeting, we've, we've had kind of, a, let's say, a, a varying approaches to handling um, public, comment, public comment. And I think this is an important thing for us to, um, to discuss as a means of uh, advancing uh, clarity uh, for the organization around important topics. Um, uh, I know that there's always going to be a uh, uh, varying degrees of uh, challenge between honoring the participation and the uh, uh, attendance of individuals who want to convey to the board concerns, sentiments, occasionally accolades for things that are going on. Um, to the extent that uh, those things, some of the conversations we've had is to the extent that those things are tied to an agenda item, we miss in the spirit of um, bi-directional communication, we miss the opportunity for individuals to learn and hear more if they come and share a perspective and then leave. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if it's something that we're actually going to discuss. And so some of the schools out are, could we have greater consistency around if the public comment uh, that someone wants to make is related to an agenda item, that you can operate from the same basis of at least a conversation if the presentation of that topic is done, then public comment is given. And it actually even gives you a chance, because one of the challenges in public comment often is uh, we don't want to comment on things that we haven't discussed or have for vetting, and maybe there's sort of different sides to this. You have an opportunity then for management to respond uh, if it's uh, on the agenda. If it isn't, you have the opportunity for it to actually be uh, serviced later. The other thing is, um, yeah. the other notion to, uh, and I know that, again, it's competing for people who show up, but uh, for uh, oftentimes I see in other uh, public entities, comments for things that are not on the agenda uh, to be held to the end of the meeting, or at least to, even if it's done at the beginning, to only be a few things because it can then lionize the time for what you've actually prepared to uh, discuss and engage. 
but to save that for the end, it gives you an opportunity to hear it, knowing that there's no uh, um, uh, intention to discuss it then, but you can make it then an agenda item for either a committee or a next uh, uh, follow-up meeting, and it manages expectations for people uh, who have placed a uh, concern at your feet uh, and then felt like you just then went on to something else and maybe didn't come back to it. So so I think from uh, management's perspective and, and uh, hopefully uh, from yours, you will see uh, there being a benefit to, um, to closely in committees and full board managing that comment period for those purposes out of respect not just for your preparation but also the people who want to talk recognizing that that may mean and it will be a beneficial thing that they sit through meetings to hear uh, things that are being discussed and get a flavor for what are the challenges or the opportunities for the organization. It's, um, yeah, it's wishful thinking and, and a constant dilemma uh, for public bodies. Um, on the one hand, you want people to hear your deliberation before they comment so they know what you're planning to do. On the other hand, you want to hear from people, or as the public, you want to articulate your position in hopes of influencing the decisions that we make. And it's, it's really hard to know which should come first. I see the city council struggle with this. I see the uh, other boards and commissions that I serve struggle with this. And, um, you know, uh, I don't know that there's a right, right answer. Um, you know, I, I, I really like getting public comment. I don't... I, you know, there's also an etiquette to it. You know, I, I don't want, and by the way, sir, we'll, we'll get you up here in a minute. Um, um, I don't want to mute people <clears throat> by being rigid with the Brown Act. Um, I also don't want to um, make it inconvenient for people to express their opinion because of how long we take to deliberate before they get to comment. Um, I mean, we were here, we got home last night, I don't know, what, 9.30? 30, 9.30. Yeah. I would hate to make, you know, 20 people who show up to speak on an item wait until nine. You know, it, so it's it's a tough. It's a really it's a tough balance. Yeah, um, it, so it, so it is, I, I would just point out one thing though on the rigidity piece. Mm -hmm. That's it's not rigidity for the sake of rigidity. I mean, it, uh, I know it. There does need to be a certain degree of consistency. Otherwise, you run the risk of appearing to, you know, basically, you know, for lack of better, discriminate, you know, someone gets five minutes, someone is limited, you know, to the three oh, minutes. And I don't so think I think that's... No, the, the rigidity I'm speaking to is um, whether the board can discuss or comment on a, an item raised in open, uh, in, un, under, yeah, under open forum. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I, that's the rigidity I was speaking to. I've been in some boards like, well, we can't, we can't speak to that because that was open forum. And it's like, well, but but again, it's the same issue though. Because yeah. if you respond to some things but not to right. others, why are you responding to this issue but not to this issue? And it may seem like it's a convenience like, factor. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could just direct staff to go meet with the group on site. It's like, okay, well, if there's a problem, go talk to them. That's what the city council does to me and <laughs> I love the staff I work with. It's like, oh crap, we got to go solve this person's problem over in the corner. Um, but I don't think it's a violation of the Brown Act to speak to or respond to someone as long as we as a body aren't taking a position, right? No, again, it, it's, it's a question of consistency with which you do that and how far you go. And my comments weren't necessarily driven by, uh, uh, I mean, that's an element of it, but my comments were more about uh, kind of the dealing with the communication. Uh, no, I understand. Yeah. What your hope, and again, this is your wishful thing, your hope is that everyone from the public who is concerned about Alameda Health System 
will watch what we're doing and, and, and understand the same chapters of the book that we understand before they make their comment so that they're fully informed, right? And that's... A big part of it, yeah. That's, yeah. you know, uh, that, I, I love that. That's, that's aspirational goal. Well, um, here's, here's a thought. But, but is it possible that after we've heard the comments, it is a matter of public record, what has been said, um, should we in some way, shape, or form be able to direct either on our website or somewhere the information that people might need to know about that specific topic? It feels, I guess what I'm hearing is we're getting a lot of communication about an issue that the community is concerned about. When do we get back to that? When, when do we communicate the answers or the information related to that. I almost feel like it, yeah, absolutely. I, I almost feel like it gives you a better opportunity to do more of that in real time because, uh, and, and it does, it's a trade-off on everybody's uh, behalf, I would say, probably less so ours and yours because we have to be here, mm -hmm. per se, but, but if you, if, if, if they come, you allow them to speak and then they leave, you don't ever know that the circle is closed. You then have That's to right. keep figuring out, was the circle closed? Uh, and you'll, you'll hear, well, we never heard this, or we heard this. And you can almost do it in the moment, particularly if it's an item you're discussing, because you uh, want to know. And, and you've even said a couple of times, I really wish those people were here to hear this. And, well, and, and that is why we added the agenda item to the public comment. I mean, it used to just be, come talk at the beginning, and then adios. And we've actually said, no, come speak on the item that we're deliberating on. And so we we, we, we've taken that step. Um, well, but they, well, 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 maybe another way to reinforce that is to, what I've seen in some public contexts, is to have the agenda item and then say, you know, if it's a comp presentation or not, they're not all presentations, but if there is a presentation, let us there, and then comment. And almost like saying comment after every item so someone realizes, uh, because what mm -hmm. I think happens is people oh. will submit their comment and, and we don't uh, reinforce in the moment of comment, is this related to an agenda item? And oftentimes it is, and then it is, and we just let them go. And again, I, I respect people's time, so I get it. I just get worried that they so never know. So you're suggesting on the schools. agenda. So item C two, staff presentation. You know, A B public comment. C board deliberation. Yes. So you don't you don't necessarily you could you could either. Right. Hold your deliberation until they comment, or you could deliberate and then comment. Particularly if it's an action, you hold your action until you've heard all. all oh, see, I, I was going clerk. She said, "No problem." My mic's got a look on his face. Is that, is that no? No, it's all good. Just knows how long. I just have a comment. How would that work if the action item's on the consent calendar? If there's an action item that's on consent that hasn't been discussed before, and it's just on consent and it's going to be acted on like well, we actually have a box request to remove item from consent yeah, yes. I don't know that anyone's ever checked that uh, but it's actually on here they want uh, it becomes a lot I think it allows for I was going to say both that I appreciate you bringing out that point but it allows for a little bit more structure where people can appreciate it I, I actually had this issue 
what the supervisor meeting wants, where I was speaking to a matter, and I was waiting on it to come up, and I missed the first part of the meeting. They, they tend to take the consent things first. Yeah. And I didn't realize, hey, I needed to speak on something that they had already moved on. They allowed me to speak later. Uh, but I think we can get tighter with that. I also would suggest uh, one thing you could do is, uh, as the items come up, which tend to happen kind of right before the meeting, it allows you to say, look, we have like five items on this agenda and everybody wants to talk about one of them. You could move that item up. Basically, to have the conversation and then allow people to comment uh, so that they don't have to listen to four other items if they all want to talk about that one. Yeah, yeah, but then this morning I flipped the agenda because I wanted to get to the budget stuff, and I know there was at least one person that wanted to hear the conversation on psych, uh, and they, they, I saw and them entering the facility as I was leaving, uh, Mr. Brown. <laughs> so, like, I, I was hoping that, that we'd have more people here. I, I should have announced that last night that we were going to go right to the budget at 9 a.m. If you knew it, yeah. Which well, I did. I, I, I just, did yeah, 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 but I just, I, I feel bad because I wanted yeah. more people to hear that, 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 um, the PES stuff, uh, but whatever. We can, we can follow up if, if there's an interest. I think this is a great discussion that we're entertaining our process, you know, that, right. so I, I think uh, we have some room to adapt. Mm -hmm. And I do like the idea of, you know, if it's that specific item, presentation, comment, and then, because then the discussion allows us to, it's an uh, you know, uh, to also answer you in real time, like mm -hmm. the, the things, so, you yeah. know, problems all yeah. are uh, addressed in real time. If I, if I may, one, one other thing. Uh, um, uh, from the perspective of retreats, um, I, would, I would like to ask for the board's consideration that um, you know we, we want to strike this balance of retreats obviously being timely and communication being uh, around uh, um, pressing matters, but we want to uh, avoid the, uh, uh, the, the, the risk that a retreat becomes a very long board meeting, like an all-day board meeting. Uh, because one of the things it deprives, I think, us, you and us from, is the opportunity to be strategic. And what I hope is that we'll spend uh, uh, the retreats actually planning for things that have kind of a longer-term trajectory and impact for the organization. So we give ourselves, um, notwithstanding the fact that there's always going to be pressing issues, the, the uh, uh, what might feel like a luxury but really is an importance of actually talking about things that are six months out and 12 months out and thinking about it uh, and, and being intentional about it. And that helps to put us in the mind of thinking about where are the injects where we can have a conversation with you about something that we can actually plan for. Because some of the things I worry about uh, is the timeliness of uh, being able to get responses back. Uh, as you know, we're always meeting with the exception of August and December, and maybe not even August in this case. But what that means is, honestly, that, that uh, one of the things that I think if you do a survey, you might uh, uh, figure out or, or conclude or agree, maybe you won't, but uh, is that we, are, we don't you as a board aren't engaged as much in strategic thinking yep. on a routine basis and ongoing mm -hmm. basis. So, so I want to caution something because I remember asking us to create a master calendar for our board playbook. Yes. And that master calendar was to have included, you know, when we do work on the budget, when we work on certain other things that have to do with, you know, our strategy and so on. And, and we just have had a hard time doing that. It's yeah. just been super hard. If, if we were going to use our retreats 
for more strategic dialogue rather than just extended meetings, I think we need to have that map. And that way we could say, well, if we're going to be talking about the budget, you know, in six months, then the retreat in that quarter before yes. needs to be dedicated to that. Um, I, I just think we've struggled with how to make that happen, and I've been silent about it, but knowing fully that we always come in and we've got our binders, there should be in the first few pages, um, by quarter, if we could, what are the themes that we need to be addressing so that we have that as an outline for the four days that we dedicate to I the... I was waiting for you to speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I, th I think it's been hard. No, it's, a it's a really <laughs> tough thing to do. It's very mm -hmm. hard. It's just no. that is what we would need in order to set the agenda for the retreats, I sure. think. Well, and if I could point out, I, I don't disagree with you and we said that the spring retreat would be the budget conversation, and it was yes. the last two springs. Uh, and, and then last spring we were in Alameda, and um, unfortunately we're in a weird situation yeah, we where we can't be having long-range strategic planning at this retreat because we've got yeah. a budget, right. you know, problem. I but, agree. Well, I think you're right, but I can't recall what we said fall and winter looked like i just i, I can't um. so i have it on my computer if you want it but Good. it was <laughs> it was an attempt to borrow from the diagram that you have on budget that's right that's and right it was a way to ask ourselves can we have a similar diagram that's about human uh, resources and talents and so on that's right. another one on ops just the bigger big picture operations and I forget what the fourth one was, but I think we we tried to actually borrow from what you've created for the budget cycle. So if we can go back to that, um, that might be a wonderful way to make sure that the retreats stay focused on that. And of course, we know right now this was just we have to do what we're doing. So I, I wasn't going to bring that up for a while. Yeah. I'm going to pause and uh, invite our public speakers talking about communication up. Uh, David, uh, is it tooth? tooth? I, I can't. Tunnel. Sorry, I couldn't read that. I, I've had I have bad imaging. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, as I always said, if I could have done uh, math, I could have been a medical doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I appreciate your comments on communication. I'm going to leave here now and I'm going to go meet with my member who's losing her job today. Um, and before 10 days ago, she had no idea that that was coming. And the reason that she had no idea that that was coming was because last year when you did layoffs, your labor relations department and all of our unions got together in a room and we hashed it all out. We said, okay. Tell us the people who you think you need to lay off. Let's work this through this process. Let's see if there are concessions we might offer you. Let's see if there are positions we might be able to move around. Let's see if we can figure out a way to keep these people employed. But we didn't do that this year. This year, it's all been dribs and drabs, and there is no rhyme or reason for it. And every time my members say to me, okay, are, are we done with layoffs? Are we done with layoffs? I don't have a real answer for that because I don't know. Because every time I open my mail, I wonder, okay, am I going to get more layoff notices? Who else is going to lose their job this week? Because we're not communicating. You all talk about a very high level of communication 
you want to communicate in a very high level. But I will tell you, that is not getting down to the rank and file. The rank and file people are hearing things like, okay, I'm getting laid off this week. That's what they're hearing. They're not hearing, okay, uh, I have to sacrifice for the better good of this organization. They're hearing, I don't have a job anymore. And they don't hear why, and they don't know why. I mean, and, and I get it. It's complicated. I've, I've reviewed your budget situation. I have some idea of what's going on, and I have a pretty advanced degree, and I still am a little like, wow, that's complicated. But they don't get it. And I can tell you right now that the people who are behind have zero morale left, right? Because they also don't understand what's going on. You have not explained it to them at all, right? Not in the way that they understand, right? They just hear, we now don't have $86 million and we don't know why. So I, I appreciate the fact that you want to communicate on a pretty high level and I, and I get that. But I'll tell you, it's not coming down. And those people are not hearing it. And the people who are leaving are leaving disgruntled, which is anytime you lose your job, nobody's happy about that. But the people who are staying, who are going to have to try and make all of the extra work, right? Because it's not like the healthcare doesn't go away, right? It doesn't like the patients are like, well, I understand that, the, that you're out of time, that you're out of money, but I still need care. Those people have to work harder now. They don't know why this is going on. And I would encourage you to communicate that to them in a way that they're understanding, because right now they are not. So I appreciate your time. I have to go tell somebody they don't have a job anymore. Thanks. Thank you for that input. That's, uh, that's meaningful. Meaningful. Okay. All right. So what's the takeaway? Let, let's yeah. make sure we're summarizing. Because I, I want to that. model the behavior that we think everyone should be doing. Exactly. Yeah. So, to teach back. So what, what would be the takeaways from today? Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll share what I heard, but I'm uh, um, uh, open to uh, um, um, clarification. So, so first off, I heard a couple of uh, um, recommendations or suggestions around how to uh, enhance uh, uh, communication that we're already doing. And uh, they included things like, uh, making use of technology, podcast, video, uh, through our internal channels, uh, but also recognizing that uh, the importance of uh, Q&A, uh, uh, particularly around difficult issues, but Q&A and that face-to-face -face is really important. I heard uh, as uh, coming up with um, uh, talking points, uh, but also being intentional about uh, communication. What was the understanding of the purpose of the communication? Uh, what were the takeaways, uh, similar to what we're doing here? Uh, slowing down and listening, checking in to see what people heard, uh, some uh, thoughts and ideas uh, around or thinking around room and mail management, I perhaps even using the internet is what I heard as an idea, and we'll explore that. Uh, uh, respond and encourage engagement. I, I captured and more frequent written communication. I heard about the rule of sevens. I'll look into that. Seven times three, I said. Uh, clarification, uh, uh, what was communication in different ways. Uh, clarification and the repeat back. I hope I got that right. Uh, um, uh, and then and the level of seven-year-old. Oh yeah, and they, oh yeah. I actually really love that because I was like, oh, I have a good, um, I have a good uh, person to test on in, in about nine months. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, uh, and then I heard about direction, alignment, and commitment. Uh, uh, just trying to make sure that uh, that that as um, a framework or a potential, these are all different ideas, but, but frameworks that we should explore to be a, uh, a, a structure by which we uh, uh, 
try to apply more, more of our communications to them. The frequency, um, uh, so what kind of communication and the town hall uh, frequency is uh, another thing that I skip uh, from this. So, so those are the things I heard, but I also heard that there is yeah, at least no, a willingness and a desire to think about how we might partner with the board on structuring communication in the context of board and committee meetings, uh, uh, as well as looking at uh, revisiting uh, where we uh, left off on our work around uh, strategic planning and use of retreats uh, and, and seeing if we can continue to uh, 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 plow that land so that we can have the balance between obviously timely communication which sometimes might actually supersede if there's something uh, of this nature we're intentionally saying we're not going to do XYZ because we have to do this but we're doing that to other comment with intent and knowing that uh, any uh, impact that they will have on the strategic thinking will have to uh, factor in and be thoughtful about how we do that in some other uh, uh, time or, or, or concert. Yeah, That's what I, I heard. I, I, I think you captured it and I want to just emphasize one thing. During times of crises, people have to really communicate a lot more mm -hmm. in order mm -hmm. to overcome the rumors, the anxiety, the fear. Yeah. And so right. th there may be, and I know that this will take you know coordination with Terry, I think, quite a bit, but there may be a need for a monthly newsletter that's on, the, uh, on our public website that really gets to like the main things that are happening. And it may be no more than say three bullets, but it's gotta be from the desk of the CEO, right? Mm -hmm. And and I really think, Del Vecchio, that that will be sort of the place where people can go first to just capture what <coughs> is it that I most need to know or understand about what's happening. And then from there, your town halls, your other communications can expand upon that. Um, and I would ask that all people leaders, I'm not even talking just the CEOs, I would ask all people leaders need to read that so that they can be consistent with you. I don't think that that's too much to ask of anybody who's in a team manager role, director role. Mm -hmm. That from yeah. the CEO newsletter should be something that they're going to talk about at their team meetings or you know discuss and and holding them to accountable to that I think is going to be important. Thank you. I know Raquel is capturing this uh, as well. Raquel, by the way, helps me with all my, uh, well, a lot of stuff, but chat and choose as well, which are the more informal suggestions. So would that include what we just heard from the um, public speaker? Would that include more information about about you positions could. being eliminated? You, you yeah. So that people knew that they were going to be part of I, I, I actually, I, I, you echo. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Like, I think that that what what um, Mr. Tuttle said was uh, significant in yeah. that um, <laughs> not knowing where the eighty six. Like, we don't have eighty six million that we did have, and we don't know why. I mean, that if that's the feeling among. I mean, it took us a while to figure out right. why, yeah. and right. and it's not eighty six. It's sixty five, but now it's yeah. less. It's a moving target. You know, I mean, that's like that. But I agree with you. Like I think there, there's got to be something there. Um, so what I'd say, just just so we're we're clear, and I I, I agree with your um, uh, your your sentiments in large part. Some of the communications you saw listed are those communications, right. and they are and they are clearly, um, um, particularly the written ones, are only unidirectional. So we'll acknowledge that. But that right. is context for that. But then the others are where you know 
to varying degrees, you can get audiences where you have this. And so you may, you know, this one of those things like, if I wasn't there and engaged, the communication didn't happen. We had an example of this yesterday, like, yep. you didn't tell me this, and then the person says, I did tell you, like, oh, I didn't go to that meeting. That's going to yep. happen. That's right. And there's going to be like, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> it's going, my favorite quote is, the problem with communication is the illusion that it has already occurred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. so, but, but it doesn't mean we can't get better. This is something that I think will always have to be intentional about improving and working on. I, I, I'm going to guess that this is one of those things you, you never really that's true but when you have something that you can then say to everyone did you happen to see the from the CEO memo of two weeks ago it actually answered that question when you can then have a way for people to go back and point them to the source of information get them to really see that you actually did talk about this or you did cascade that information I'd like to be, you know, in, in that sort of league where we can say, hey, we are trying to cover these things. And if there's a question, by all means, that might be the, you know, what prompts you to write about that. Mm-hmm. And it could also be a Rorschach. So we communicate broadly and say this, this, and this. And then a person can legitimately say, but you didn't say this, so I didn't read it that way. You right. know, you didn't say yeah, my role right. in my unit or my department yeah, was like, no, I did not, and that's going to happen. That would be, and it would be a fair critique. If you're going to do it from the desk of, I want it to not just go to all the, the staff. Uh, I think we should automatically be copied. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I also think the board of supervisors should be copied, yes. just because they should be, and and, and their staff that that are designated for healthcare. Um, that way, we're all on the same page. You know, it, it's um, there are so many levels of interaction you know like mm-hmm. noha and i were at a meeting with all the board members on monday it had nothing to do with alameda health system but everything to do with the impacts on our health system mm-hmm. of homelessness you know mm-hmm. we're going to interact you know you know uh you know i meet with nate and noha will be sort of meet with him like i mean nate, nate's my pal um, i've known him 20 years it so if we're all receiving that from the desk of you know Oh, what's this all about? Oh, yeah, I got that too. Yeah, it, no, here's what it is. We can we can help be ambassadors for you Same externally, um, not yeah. so much internally. And I would actually almost argue that maybe our labor leaders, you know, the organizers who represent these different labor groups, should kind of be on that distribution list because they're going to get it anyway. But why not let them get it at the same time as the, as the employees, um, just so that. Um, we can at least all debate the communication you sent out, not the lack of communication. Right. I'm so excited about this. The goal here, I, I, I know that this will be frustrating because no matter what you choose to put in it this, you know, this month versus next blasted. month, you're going to get. But over time, what I think that does culture. is it gives you a cult. Exactly. It creates a culture that says, you know what, if you're worried about something, go check that newsletter or, you know, let's just use this to validate that we really did, you know, have that information communicated. It, it, it will become the source that people will gravitate towards. Oh, they'll know that every week we are going to get something. There's that... Something comes up yeah, that you feel compelled yeah. to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what is, that's kind of the question, I think. Yeah. Sorry. 
I mean, that's a question. What is, what's, com what's he compelled to communicate? We heard just today about, um, or yesterday actually from Dr. Ingenio about the, the physicians not knowing about the shift changes at, in the ED at um, San Leandro Hospital. Yeah. I know um, there's been some concerns raised at Alameda Hospital about not knowing about the future of Alameda Hospital. I mean, what are the parameters of what is going to be shared here? Are, are we going to share every time there's a shift change or are we going to share when, when it's something only broad things like when the, the nursing staff is going to be relocated to the new um, unit at San Leandro? It, it, there's, it, I think that we're just setting this up to be Hmm. continuation of the same thing that the discretion it, that's why we have a CEO it's a discretion to communicate what needs to be communicated and to understand what staff and which staff need to be have information shared so I, I, I hesitate to say let's just do a, a weekly or monthly or quarterly newsletter and include everything in it that we think is relevant but something's going to be missed or something's going to be misunderstood yeah, I think, you know, and I say this too, that running a very much smaller organization, but still sometimes feels like, wow, I can't meet everyone or talk to anyone anymore. It, and so, you know, I think it is up to the discretion of the CEO of sort of like what is relevant to everybody, whether they're in this city, this other city, or this other county, or whatever. And regardless of what their job is, like what is the message that you want to get to everyone? And that can be hard, usually minor, a mixture of, um, you know, maybe explaining something that's been a challenge, thanking people for their patience, explaining what it is that we're doing from a leadership standpoint to mitigate it, and celebrating something that's new or great or wonderful, or letting people know about something that's coming that, you know, may affect a largish, you know, percentage of people. So it's just kind of at that level, and I, I totally agree. I think the frequency um, and the content would be at the discretion of the CEO. Yeah. I think the suggestion about copying all the people that you said, I mean, also should probably be discretion of the CEO, but I think it's really helpful to your point. We're seeing one another in different <coughs> venues with different hats on, and nobody likes to be blindsided, um, you know, whether whatever it might be. So I, I do think it's a great suggestion. It could either be a CC or it could be, you know, it could be forwarded to us or just whatever, just so that we're in the know. Um, I would cool. just balance with good news as well as challenging right. news. That's all. <laughs> Two good points. So, well, so, so I, use your discretion. Go through it system wide if it's not system wide. Yes. Yeah, just know. to expand on that, we, we yeah. shouldn't. I, I mean, we shouldn't expect this to be down to the granular. No, no. I'm not right. suggesting no. I mean, that at to, all. To, to yeah, say no. to the point that was the public speaker raised for layoffs in one unit, it shouldn't be. No. In, yeah. No. 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 But on the other hand, so with regard to communication, my last point will be. Then we need to have you need to have those meetings to with the the leaders of the the labor unions to discuss when there's whatever units and we have heard that you'll share it with the board and I know that it's being shared with um, some of the union members or maybe not maybe it's not happening being shared until the actual time of left but as you've pointed out in the past and, and I know that this is a it, it is what you aspire to for your practice is to have the, the leaders in the room and to discuss when this is going to happen and how it's going to happen. And that's the best way to make sure that everybody's on the same page, even if not everybody agrees or everybody thinks this is the best way to go. At least everybody knows where. Right, I think we're ready to have Dr. Bouquet take us through a conversation about quality.
and uh, finance and how they merge. Oh, what's next? Oh, um, I'm sorry, what's next? One other presentation on the idea of or the. Uh, oh, right, patient engagement. I'm, yeah. I mean, sorry, I'm sorry. Is, we're, we're just trying to twofer. Okay, get us out oh, early. No, no, no. If we, no, we can. We can. No, I'm cool, totally cool about this. Yeah, no, I'm let's cool go with the order. No, 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 keep it in order. I just forgot. Okay. Let's, let's go. My agenda line kind of was pretty soft. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. why, don't, why don't, if you're okay, we can go ahead and knock it out. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So um, thank you. Uh, I, I didn't know I was on the agenda until I saw it on Monday because uh, I was on vacation. But, but, but thank you. Obviously, quality is something important to me as a chair of the quality committee and as a physician here. A as you guys know, as I always discuss, we, we talk about uh, articles uh, in the setting of the quality uh, committee. And given our financial um, a situation we've been talking about that interface between finance and quality over the past two sessions. In your packet, there are two articles which we reviewed in uh, both the April and the May meeting. The first article, or the, actually the second article, is entitled uh, What is Quality Worth? Quantifying Potential Cost Savings. And I, as I said, it came from the venerable Healthcare Financial Management Association Journal. Uh, not great reading, but it, it's important stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of give you the conclusion statement on this, and it kind of walks through more consideration of process. But the concluding statement was, the value of the cost of poor quality as a financial planning tool is that it makes a clear business case for why a healthcare organization should bother about quality. It shows you that quality is not just a thing. It is the thing. It is a strategic imperative. And, the and as the reimbursement climate continues to change, understanding how to use or consider the cost of poor quality will only become more important. So uh, as I like to follow with Dr. Chacon, uh, a provocative questions and statements, I think, can, can make us think about how we interface this thing. Because I, I, I do believe in what they said. Quality is we're not here to provide poor quality care. We're here to provide care. We're, we're, we're striving to provide the best quality care. and and. As sometimes as as a uh, I'll call it sequela of our financial decisions, there are impacts on quality which we maybe did not foresee. So part of this dialogue is to how to help us structurally create a system where we can give consideration to that. Sometimes we're going to have to make tough financial decisions which are going to impact quality of a unit or or a group of patients or what have you. But as long as we're being overt and ostensible in that consideration, I think I think that that would be I think that would be ideal for us and help us to be more successful. The second article um, I uh, included was from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, it, uh, again, a very provocative title: How Not to Cut Healthcare Costs. And uh, a couple of uh, uh, brief elements. There were there were five um, uh, statements. The first one is uh, cutting back on support staff. Uh, the implication that support staff is the engine for for how we get patients into the room, how we how we register patients. Can I interrupt you? Of course. Um, did everyone have a chance to read this article? I, I didn't realize you'd already put it in the packet. I read it uh, early this morning. Yeah. Um, so I just want, before you summarize it, yeah. I just want to see how many, if we were oh, sorry. on the no, page. That's a great. What? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I, I thought the, the part about um, doctors spending more time with, with patients because the admin staff are doing the admin work as opposed to paying a specialist top dollar to do that work was pretty significant. Key. Yeah. And as a doc here, I'd kind of want to hear your thoughts on how we're doing it that because 
after what Dr. Ingenu said last night about uh, Epic and him hiring a scribe to follow him around, like, it's kind of like along that line. Yeah. Um, I, I had a full clinic template the other day, uh, w uh, and um, I was trying to move the patients along, and I was still behind. Uh, none of my patients spoke English, so that, that, that well, I, I have kind of a modifier for that. Uh, a patient that I probably could have seen in 20 minutes, I have to effectively double that time when, when I go through translation for, because going over again and again and making sure that there's a cultural sensitivity to how they're doing, in any case, I did clinic, and then uh, I'd just done enough charting to get the staff to do the activities, get the labs or what have you, but I really hadn't done the clinical charting. It, it cost me two hours after to do to do my charting. And I did that in the night on my own time. Oh, so do we pay you for and that? that's why you're deb deb documentation. No, I'm, 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 I'm salaried, so, you know, I don't give really care well, how many hours I get. No, that's mm -hmm. an important question, because, uh, Luis, if, if if the docs are going to have to do the work regardless, we're going to pay them the same amount. Then, uh. Yeah. <laughs> but if you read any article on electronic health records, I mean, just read any, any article, article, it's all saying the same thing. It does a wonderful job of quantifying, validating what's being done for patients, productivity issues, all of that. It does not, it does not improve in and of itself, the quality of care. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it does create enormous taxing time, energy, focus on the docs. Well, I think it could hurt. Yeah, in terms of relationship, uh, you know, one on, our, on our true north dashboard are patient satisfaction scores. Right, so we we have to think about kind of the downstream effects of that, and yeah, it's th this is really hard and tough stuff about you know how we do that charting. There, there's one. I wish uh, our CIO Mark Amy was here to kind of corroborate. I, I was once reading this article on efficiencies, and they said if you do it perfectly, the best you could hope to is to get to 90 to 95 percent of your previous efficiency. Yeah, uh, really? it, it, with an EMR. You know, I, I, I joke my predecessor, Dr. Ralph Bernstein, who was kind of the father of Highland GI, um, who hired me and put me in this position 11 years ago. I, while there were still uh, uh, handwritten notes, um, I was still reading some of his notes, and it would it would be funny um, because it 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 shows what simplicity that we had at that time. There was this one patient who 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 he wrote uh, in his assessment, dyspepsia, which means abdominal pain comma, better. <laughs> and that was his clinic note. <laughs> but it really, it got to the essence of what we needed to document. Now, for a patient that I have dyspepsia better, that's that's 20 minutes of typing, you know, uh, with, with going through all the, and putting the orders and all that kind of mm. stuff. So it's a kind of funny, uh, it's a, it's a mm. funny place that we've come to. But it, it is the world that we live in, where we have to document. You know, it's the um, interoperability. It's the interoperability. You know, I went for this article on, on Epic and, and all these. The, the, these are basically engines derived out of a fee-for-service environment. Mm -hmm. All these elements that we're putting in the record are to get to a particular billing code, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So one might ask, as we move 
to a capitated environment, do we really, really need to put all those elements in there? And I don't, I, I, I'm not the guy to answer that question. Yeah, you do. The question is yes. Yeah, because on the peer side, they still need the yeah. utilization, they yeah. still need the justification to, um, um, for the rates they yeah. have, which that's, so, that's so, 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 can I ask a broader question then? Of course. So, on support staff, where do we fare? On, like, if I, if I were to take the Vizian model last night on those other 70 hospitals, like, where are we on support staff ratio wise compared to another system? Do our doctors get more or less in the middle? Uh, uh, I don't know. It probably, it, it well, I, I haven't looked at this particular element, but I, I would say it's not a, it's probably not a, one answer. It probably varies based off of service. It right. varies based off I would of agree with, I would population. Agree with the it, it probably just varies widely by service. Um, I know when I'm in a clinic uh, that, that I have a medical assistant who is assigned to me, but if there's another doc in the clinic, and some days we have to, she'll have to do both of us. And that includes some intake, and then she'll have to do the discharge and calls. So it, it, is, it is widely variable. It is widely and in some areas of the hospital, <clears throat> it's a legal requirement, right, to have certain ratios. Yeah. Sure. And then in others, not so much. Yeah. But there is some data that says having scribes can be the most efficient use of the electronic health record, yeah. which is just mind-boggling because <laughs> that's just, honestly, that's saying that every physician would need to in essence be paired up with a person who manages all of that minutia. And you do have to ask yourselves, do you want to pay someone who's, you know, have 18 years of schooling to be the surgeon or whatever they are to enter things into the computer? Or do you want to have someone who's trained specifically to do that as a scribe? And my opinion is I'd rather have TAF spend time seeing people and talking to the patient and making sure the patient is okay and making sure he feels that all the treatment protocols are being followed than him typing. I'm not interested in him typing. So take us to the... To the ground. I mean, what, does that exist? Does, yeah. We, we, in, in, so, so obviously, we live in a world now where we have um, uh, hybrid records, uh, including paper. Um, uh, we have very few scribes. We do have scribes, but very few. I think they're actually exclusive to the EDs and the community hospitals. I think right now, mm -hmm. at least that's all I'm aware of. Um, the thing that I heard Dr. Ingenio say yesterday and things I've heard other providers uh, and organizations say when they use scribes is um, the value of scribes have to be uh, manifest in the productivity of the provider. So it's, it becomes a situation where in organizations where you have scribes, if you don't have the resulting productivity that then justifies and compensates for your ability to have scribes, mm -hmm. you, you lose. Yeah. Financially. Yeah. You lose financially, that's yeah. true. You just exacerbate your yeah. financial challenges. And you heard him say, the way, the reason, my rationale for doing it and my justification is I, I, I'll see, I'd rather see one more patient than spend right. two hours doing charting. So if he's saying I produce enough volume and activity to then pay for this, then it's a trade-off of my time. It's not necessarily that I, I save a lot of time, I just use my time differently. But this is also how we interface the quality question, because if it 
if the patient feels, if it, they feel it's more patient-centered and it results in a better experience score, right. maybe it's worth it. I'll tell you, um, as everyone knows, and now for public record, I suppose, I had a major surgery in January of this year at UCSF. And uh, in my follow-up, my, my, my spinal surgeon uh, came into the room with a scribe. And he looked directly at me the entire time. Mm -hmm. And his, he was just saying, get, did you get that? Yeah, and get that? Okay, get put that in the note. Mm -hmm. And and it, it was, you know, yep. I actually put him on the clock when he was in the room. It was only about 13 minutes uh, that he gave me on the room. But but after that, I took off my patient hat. And I, and I said, hey, Dr. Tay, uh, tell me about the scribe thing. He goes, we did the business analysis. I have to see three more patients to do this, but it's worth it. Um, so I don't think we're ready for that yet in this organization, but I think that when we get past our, our short-term issues, I think this is a great thing to talk about because then, then, then it, you know, uh, moving more patients, in, if, if done correctly, can, can serve us a lot better on, on multiple levels. If your visit without a scribe is 20 minutes, mm -hmm. that's another way, right? Yeah. Is it building in efficiency yeah. within a visit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Potentially, yeah, know. absolutely, and and how we set our templates, you know. But uh, I just want to just a point of clarification. I mean, very small percentage of our organization is going from paper to electronic at this point, right? They're just going correct. from one EHR to a different EHR. Correct. So yeah. yes, okay, yeah, or in some cases from several EHRs to one. Yes, right. yes. so hopefully we're improving efficiency for most, and I think mm -hmm. the, the one that we're most concerned about is probably the ones going from paper to electronic right. for the first yeah. time. Yeah, and this construct, yes, yeah. So mistake number two on the article was under-investing in space and equipment, and that's a mistake. And I, I'm, I'm going to say I actually believe that Luis and his team actually does a, a pretty good job of, of consideration of the equipment and the space. You know, we're, we're sort of boxed in. We, I, I think there's not very many spaces we don't utilize effectively in this organization. I'll let Luis talk about that. Uh, um, uh, a, a, Equipment issues, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, that that that's that's a challenge. I mean, there 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 are literally hundreds of thousands of pieces of equipment here, and the equipment management process um, it, it can always be improved. But generally speaking, I've had the equipment I've always wanted, and I've always asked around, and and I think this is not a big mistake that we make. Luis, no, I'm no, <laughs> no. I, you know, I mean, we, we, we have multiple mechanisms. I mean, we have all the primary, you know, necessary equipment, I mean, you know, in, in the article. And, and as we look at it, some of the examples are, you know, making sure that you have, you know, do you need a portable electric machine in the ER so you can go ahead and move patients quickly through the, you know, the, 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 the process and so, so on and so forth. And so we, we, we invest in critical pieces of equipment. Uh, we are very fortunate to have a very active foundation uh, in which they have also provided us with great support. Uh, in fact, our imaging department here at Highland has benefited from multiple grants and, and support from the foundation where we brought in high-tech equipment. And so we're currently in the process of doing that as well as part of our active campaign in San Leandro. So not only do we have our capital plan, which is part of our budgeting process, and we look at all of our equipment and how we're managing the life cycle of that equipment, but also we're looking at uh, you know our other facilities and how we're leveraging the foundation support to make sure we have these critical components in place and so again you know in some cases you can't have everything but uh, but for the most part we, we do work very hard to make sure that our providers have everything they need to make sure that they're providing great care yeah and how about in space <clears throat> I, 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 do we have doctors twiddling their thumbs waiting to do surgery because there's not a room available 
Uh, we had not 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 sitting around twiddling their thumbs, but we do have some inefficiencies uh, in, in the OR, and so that's one of the things that we've been looking at. Uh, so so for example, um, I will tell you that, uh, and and we don't do these anymore, but we used to. Uh, but uh, there were certain procedures that we would do in the operating room that in many other cases, uh, you know, like for example, vasectomies. Vasectomies are done usually in the physician's office, Important in a procedure room. Mm -hmm. And we were using operating room time to do those. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of a highly inefficient use of an operating room. And so we're looking at, and we've done some work already in saying, no, 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 let's move some of these things to the appropriate mm -hmm. setting to make sure that then we can backfill the OR, mm -hmm. which, bottom line, the OR is your most expensive real estate in the entire organization. Is it also your biggest money The most maker? valuable. Yeah. Right. So you want to make sure you're managing it the best way you can. And so we want to make sure we're, we have, we're doing appropriate cases, that we're setting up the appropriate block times, that we're providing the, the, the physicians and the surgeons you know, the, the necessary time that they need to make sure that they take care of their demand. And mm -hmm. so, and how we now start looking at leveraging Alameda, leveraging San Leandro, and how we're moving some of these cases to these other sites to help decompress Highland to further add other cases or more complex cases. And so that's work that's ongoing, but we've done a tremendous amount of work of shifting some of these Procedures, for example, you know, we used to do a lot of, you know, um, there were some heart procedures that we used to do, and, and um, you know, in, uh, device procedures we used in the OR. Those can be done in the cath lab, and we have three state-of-the-art cath labs. And now we're doing that. So now we're doing that. Yeah. So that's so. So I think, you know, as I shared yesterday in my examples, I mean, that those were some of the things that, you know, in alignment with the article, we've done a lot of this, and we continue. But that's what this yeah. really the intent. Yeah. That's cool. a good example, and I am. Um, I, my question is kind of about that process and about how that works. I, I understand that the MRI machine is going back to um, Alameda Hospital. Correct. So how is that decision made? I mean, I, I don't, I have no details about why it left and what the impact was. I, I'm just curious. I, I didn't even know it was gone, but now it's coming back, which is great, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so, so we have uh, at, at Alameda and San Leandro, we don't have an MRI unit like we do here at Highland. And so we have a portable unit that's outside the building. And so when we were doing the CT project at Alameda Hospital, the CT renovation, well, I need a CT at all times. The MRI is uh, a different level of diagnostics, but it's not necessary at all times. And so what we did was we removed the MRI because we only have one location for this, one pad, and we brought in a portable CT scanner during the construction of the, you know, the, the, the renovation we did in the, in the Alameda Hospital. We, that, that construction is done. We've commissioned and we're using that new, brand new state-of-the-art CT in the facility. Now we're bringing back the MRI. And so we have the MRI at Alameda and San Leandro, three days a week at uh, Alameda, two days a week at San Leandro, and we schedule cases accordingly. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that MRI is, is a diagnostic, is a procedure that, for the most part, you, you, your greatest volume is outpatient. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at leveraging that uh, at, at the two sites and based on the volumes that we have. And so that's kind of what's happening out there. And so that's usually oh, is something it, is it necessary? I mean, I, I'm just curious what, what, with regard to the, we have one and, and it's able to be moved, which is great, but is it even necessary or would it be better to use a stationary or to have it at one of the clinics, like at, at Eastmont or something, and have people go there since it is mostly outpatient? I, 
I'm just mm. asking. It kind of is, a, I think, a, a tie between this, uh, well, we're talking about quality of finance, but quality uh, is an eye of the holder, right? So quality can be things like just about, like, you know, it's sort of the pure clinical elements of it, but it can also be uh, the, the, the uh, accessibility and things around that. And so, actually, I think uh, there's a nice uh, story here that you may recall. Uh, I believe this is the case where we looked at that contract in terms of the utilization and the way the contract was structured before where, uh, to Luis's point, it's an outpatient procedure. It's provided not just the equipment but the service by an outside vendor, and we had a contract where we effectively paid for the availability of the service irrespective of the utilization of it, and that construct allowed for the vendor to be paid irrespective of the fact that we weren't using it as much. Whereas now, they, we've incentivized them to actually take advantage of the fact that they have the geography, and because it can be used from an outpatient basis, they're incentivized to market the fact that that service is available, and they're not just relying on volume from us, but they can actually get volume from the community. So it's sort of an asset and a resource to the community to have it there, geographically proximate, and uh, and the, uh, vendor, the vendor now is paid in such a way that is more aligned with our own utilization, and then they're incentivized to actually uh, have more skin in the well, game as it were, too. that's kind of a good point about, about this particular that, part of the right? article, yeah. okay. about equipment. I mm -hmm. mean, because often equipment and space are what attracts providers as well, right? Yes. You know, you heard you're that, a physician. You heard that yesterday. You may, yeah. If you're a neurologist, or you may not want to go to a place that doesn't have an MRI. Right, right. exactly. Right. It makes your job a lot harder. Yeah. We're certainly looking at a lot of uh, elements of this. I think uh, you, you have heard, and, and as uh, I hope you heard from Luis as well, we continue to because there are always opportunities. And a lot of them we really do rely on the uh, the uh, subject matter expertise and the technical expertise of our providers to help us to think about it, as well as the feedback from them because sometimes these get caught up in the complexities of the systems we're in. Uh, we're looking at something now that's kind of in line with uh, the work that we were talking about with urgent care, but also uh, an opportunity we have in the organization here where uh, the location of the orthopedic clinic relative to then the imaging space, which a lot of times people with fractures, as you might imagine, need uh, uh, x-rays. And so looking at how to make that process a little bit more seamless and one-stop for patients. And uh, we have kind of x-ray machine in one place and not one in another and just all those dynamics interplay when you're looking at multiple different uh, uses of space uh, for clinical services uh, uh, as well so but a lot of work I think uh, where we uh, we want to be unequivocal about the fact that when we even even if we're looking at this from an expense management or revenue enhancement uh, opportunity in the realm of a budget that uh, quality and access and all these other things definitely do factor into the equation to varying degrees. Yeah, let me give you another example of this, and, and not to belabor the point, but I mean, again, as, as the work that continues, right? And this is this is day-to-day -day activities, and so as we're managing some of these agreements, as Del Vecchio mentioned, that contract completely revamped, you know, to make sure that there's shared accountability and that there's, you know, skin in the game for, for everyone involved for, regarding the MRI. I'm, I'm also currently in conversations with an organization that uh, uh, I through, through some colleagues of mine that work for Kaiser, what, what this company specializes in is is leveraging uh, very specialized pieces of equipment to where they help and facilitate the movement of that piece of equipment across multiple facilities. So then when we're looking at it and as we're positioning ourselves, once we go live with Epic, we'll have greater scheduling practices, you know, uh, we'll have greater visibility as far as how we're structuring our, our, our you know, all of our care delivery activities across the entire system. If 
I have to, you know, instead of me having to, to purchase, you know, a fake emulsifier, you know, for each facility to do special, you know, very specific procedures in the eye, I can buy one and then I can move it around as we need to based on scheduling, based on need, based on those types of things. And so we're working, I'm working on that right now to see how we can leverage that for major pieces of equipment that are usually very expensive, very specialized, and aren't used all the time. So when there's a piece of equipment that has downtime, if it's just sitting in a room and it's only being used twice a week, and you have two of them at, at the sites, well, maybe I can use one of them at both sites and use it five days a week. And so there's, there's great benefits to that. And so that, that's what one of the things that we're, we're, we're managing and I'm, I'm evaluating. So again, a lot of work in this area here to manage, maximize space yeah. and equipment. Mistake number three from the article is focusing narrowly on procurement prices. And I think this is a nice just follow-up and we probably don't need to say much because Luis gave us a very, very nice presentation yesterday on Vizient, yeah. which is exactly designed to address this particular issue. I mean, just knowing that we're paying 88th percentile on a hip, uh, on a hip replacement, I mean, uh, on, on a prosthetic in at one hospital, 88% is ridiculous for us. But but having the clarity of that data is actually kind of pretty magnificent, in my opinion. But what does this say, though? Yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that was my question. So Are we making a mistake? So, so uh, in the, he, they give this one example, but I, I think the, the data well, I was would. Of, you, you know, in, in this system. Okay. Where could we do that? Where, where could we make that mistake? It'd be too narrow. Um, I'm putting it on the spot. Yeah, I, I don't have one right off the top of my head. Sorry, we, no, no, it's okay. I, I'll, I'll think about it. Did, didn't we have a case once in QPSC on sutures? For example, we were talking about vascular mm -hmm. surgery sutures, and Genia was talking about that. Uh, I, you, you, you smile with not a, with a funny <laughs> smile. Can you remind us about that discussion, Luis? Yeah, no, so, so you this. Like that you like that deflect? <laughs> <laughs> that was the Heisman movie. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you're just giving us data, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it no, had no. to do with the particular. But it did, it did. So, so what happened was this, and, and again, we as an organization, and one of the things that we've put in place here, uh, we reinvigorated because we had it way back when, and you know, obviously changes and things. But we have a value analysis committee. This value analysis committee is a multidisciplinary team, which is led by physicians and staff at all the different, uh, you know, departments of the hospital, and we're focusing on any type of change that we're looking at making in the organization in supplies or equipment. And so one of the things that we were looking at was we said, hey, we have, based on our current contract and based on our GPO, we can have, we, we have these sutures that we're using at 75% of our system. And these are Covidian sutures. And so, you know, there's Ethicon sutures that are used by only a small percentage of, you know, the providers in our system. And so we said, well, through the VAC and through the discussions, we said, well, what are, you know, let's, let's look at quality, let's look at, you know, usage, let's look at, you know, tools, I mean, you know, competencies, all that stuff. The team looks at everything and they say, <coughs> you know, it makes sense for us to go system-wide with the Ethicon suture because we can now then move from Tier 3 to Tier 5. And our cost goes down by X. And so if they're good enough to be used at all these sites, why aren't they good enough to be used at these other sites? Mm -hmm. And so this is where, at times, you have to deal with and be, be very mindful and respectful of the fact that, you know, there is some physician preference in some cases mm -hmm. of how they're using some of these things. And so it's that fine balance of saying, I respect your preference, but equally, here's the data. Here's the data that shows that this is an equivalent, you know, piece of equipment, equivalent suture 
that ha you know the results and the outcomes are no different than with this other one. Mm -hmm. And so you know this is what I, what we were dealing with with uh, you know with uh, specifically in San Leandro with Dr. Ingenio. He's a vascular surgeon. He did. His preference was not to use the Ethicon sutures, and he wanted to stick with, you know, the, the others. that he's been using for 20 years. And right. and and yeah. and so then, you know, but it, it, the interesting thing, and I'll share. I mean, the interesting thing is, I went ahead and and I'm in a meeting with him, uh, uh, you know, discussing these issues because we feel it's important. To, I think to yesterday's point, we we talk a lot, in fact, but it, it's interesting sometimes it doesn't come across. But I was meeting with him, talking about that, and and his comments to me actually at the MEC where we brought it up, and he says. Well, that, you know, I use these at, uh, well, I had already done my research, obviously, because of it. They use these at St. Rose. And so he was saying, well, I, I mentioned, I said, well, don't you use these at St. Rose? Yeah, yeah, but I don't have a choice. Why don't you have a choice? Well, because the hospital standardized and this is all they want us to use. And I'm all like, okay. I said, and have you had any negative outcomes out there? No. So are you providing substandard care out there? Of course not. Well, then why can't we use it here? Mm -hmm. <coughs> so what I kind of got from what the article was trying to say was like, if you're just, if you're focusing just on reducing the cost of the things you buy, right. then you're not looking at like, yeah. what are, why are you buying so the things you buy? Yeah. It is. It's a narrow, it's yeah. the, right. So like. Cost, yeah. analysis, mm -hmm. so with all of these. Yeah. Well, not right. that, but like, you know, sometimes you just do things because that's how you've always done them. Like, you might be like, well, we really need to get uh, lower cost hip vaccines or whatever. The <laughs> and then you find out, well, there's this combination vaccine and that could have, you know, reduced the cost for all of it and be less needles and all this. So we could, so instead of just thinking about lowering the cost for the things you do buy, you're thinking a little bit more globally about it. Well, see, and that's, and that's why I brought up the issue of the value analysis committee. Mm -hmm. That is a critical structure for the organization to look at exactly all those. That's why I thought you know, I wanted to share it as, a, as an important component of this whole process. So it is currently it is currently co-chaired uh, by our director of supply chain management and Dr. Bullard. Huh. So they are the co-chairs of this committee, and there's about 20 members in this committee, including nursing, other physicians. We then have a subcommittee of this. We call it the PVAC. And it's Procedural Value Analysis Committee, and that's very specific for OR, mm -hmm. recognizing that the operating room just has so much movement. I mean, there's so many things that are introduced into the OR, you know, that, that are very specific and unique to those, you know, some of the procedures that are performed there. So we wanted to have that. And that is co-chaired by the Director of Perioperative Services and Dr. Greg Victorino, who is the Chairman of Surgery. So as you can see, I mean, we, we really have you know, our physician leaders very involved in this process to make sure that not only are we looking at uh, being effective, efficient, and fiscally responsible with how we're managing and bringing in, you know, supplies and equipment to the facility, but that we're also balancing, as Dr. Aboleta mentioned, you know, that we're not just, you know, being penny-wise, pound-foolish here just because we want to get the cheapest piece of equipment or piece of supply. So, well, right. so listen to the, the, uh, what Luis just said. I think those are, are two wonderful examples of, of the interface between administrative medicine and the clinical sure, medicine. Well, I want to ask a question, actually. Um, coming from an organization that basically negotiates a contract and puts puts on the contract the only things that can be purchased, and then that drives everything so it's top-down. If you want to purchase something, you have to find out whether it's on the contract. And if you want to purchase something that's not on the contract, then you won't fulfill that task with what you need for it. So um, my question is, if if a doctor wanted a different suture, could they? Do, is there a mechanism for them to obtain 
a different suture for a certain procedure at a certain time? I think it make a good case. To the value added. The answer, right? the, the, so the, the answer to that, the short answer is it, yeah. yes, we're not going to restrict anyone from, you know, but there's got to be some good justification. Right. And that is truly the purpose of the, v, the value analysis committee. And that's why physicians are part of that committee as well. So they can, as colleagues, have the conversation and say, you know, but why not help me understand? And so they have that, that active dialogue. But, so the but, but we don't have in the ones Yeah, so we, we absolutely. So yeah. we have, we're not locked into anything. I mean, you know, you know, our GPO doesn't put any restrictions on what you purchase. The GPO helps maximize what you're bringing in. But if, if we need a, a specialty piece for this very special case, you know, that's scheduled for Thursday, we bring it in, and it's here for Thursday. I, and so. I just got a specialty item through uh, the Value Added Committee recently. It's something called Hemospray. It's basically like a, it's a, it, the military uses it. It's like a battlefield powder to stop bleeding. So, so in, in, in certain cases, I can't stop the bleeding by burning it or injecting it. I can spray this spray on. Now, it's expensive. It's about 1400 bucks a case, but when it's going to save someone's life. So we, there was actually a robust discussion on the Value Added Committee about this, which were very appropriate discussions. And uh, I, I'm just tickled that, that, that we were able, because it is reasonable for administrators to say, man, Dr. Bouquet, that's 1500 bucks per use. Wow. And then, but then we had to discuss, you know, the, the cost of life and all that kind of stuff. It was a really, really good discussion. Um, so I, I think this is a great cultural. That's a great example. It's a, it's yeah. a great cultural, uh, it's more than just a value-added committee, the way it's structured to me. Mm -hmm. So. I'll keep moving on if that's okay to kind of get us. Mistake number four, <coughs> maximizing patient throughput. So this is a little bit of a, a funny one. So I'm going to read to you what the article says. It would be absurd to try to increase the productivity of musicians by having them play faster. Yet, uh, and remember, this article was written by healthcare executives, so no offense here. <laughs> Yet healthcare executives force an increase in the number of patients seen by physicians each day by establishing productivity targets that limits office visits to certain amounts of time. This is blasphemy. This apparent increase in productivity, however, is not sensitive to the impact of these seemingly arbitrary standards on patient out outcomes. In fact, if you measure, as you should, a physician's productivity not by inputs, i.e. the number of patients seen, but by the quality of outcomes achieved, you'll find that physicians can often achieve greater overall productivity by spending more time with fewer patients. And then it goes on. Yeah, uh, th th this, is, this, is, this is tough stuff about a, d a discussion with an organization because it is really a true interface between, between quality and finance. You know, yep. I, I, I think there's a certain level on which you're seeing too many patients and you're just going to, you're just trying to move the patient through and you're not really addressing their concern to move them through to get that to get that you know, notch, I got, I got that number. It, I think it's an ongoing debate we have in this organization. You know, the uh, uh, you know, it's an ongoing debate that we have so in this organization. How do we err? What's that? Give a sense of how we err. Um, the data we saw yesterday suggests that we err on the side of more beds, more bed days. I, I, I think we err on the side of more. I think we do, and 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 that doesn't make us unique at all. You know, it, it actually makes perfect sense, especially when when we're when we're in the financial environment that we're in. You know, even I, as a division chief, I'm I'm trying to hit my target, right? And then sometimes I forget. You know, I go look at my staff, and my staff is stretched to the brim, and I did that to them. You know, and uh, 
So these these are these are tough discussions, you know. And 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 as, as we evolve as an organization, I think we need to have these dialogues, you know. Um, uh, through our, our ambulatory, you know, Dr. Barbary is not here, but through our ambulatory uh, division, a set number of patients was, was set as a standard for clinics. You know, doctors practice a little bit different. You know, some patients are a little bit more complex than others. Uh, is eight the right number? Uh, that, that dialogue was had, and, and, and for good or for bad, it was a decision which was made. And, and, and uh, some people accommodated. And some people, you know, we, we've had a few who've left the organization because it, it, it didn't suit them. And one can argue whether that was the right thing for the organization. What's eight? Sorry. What's eight? It, it was eight in a, in a half day. In a half day. Yeah, in a half day. Which is lower than Kaiser, you know, much which is much lower than Kaiser. But, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is kind of where we have to kind of do the math of our patient population when none of your patients speak English. Eight is pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I hope that we're always taking into account well, that, and we see patients that have complexity. Yeah. So you just heard a really good example. Taft said that when he has patients that don't speak English, he needs double the time. And so my question is, when we get all of this cool data that we're going to get from Epic, we're going to be able to ask ourselves, well, how many of our patients don't speak English, right? Mm -hmm. And how many of our patients come in with comorbidities that are equally complex? It's one thing to just have a cold. It's another thing to have, oh, they have diabetes, they have COPD, they've got this, they got that. That's hard. Yeah. So productivity... That's why cohort. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so, we need a test and I say, and this will, this will also uh, somewhat speak to the uh, uh, the uh, um, presentation next. But um, there's a there's a mantra in the in the performance improvement world, particularly in the world around lean or Toyota production processes. Without standard work, there can be no improvement. And right. I know that Dr. Paquette is a huge fan of standard work, and uh, and so what that means is you have to start with a pro you have to start with some solution and a framework, and then. And from there, you measure what is happening and figure out whether you can tweak north or south uh, based off of that. And so, so um, uh, one of the things that I think uh, deals with this and not uh, – um, one of the things I think we are doing to do this is, particularly in the ambulatory space, having a physician, a physician who works in this organization, has served this population, be the leader, actually is a way to completely be uh, – um, fully aligned with having somebody who would actually understand those challenges that her colleagues experience in the clinical setting, who also continues to practice in this setting and sees that dynamic and says, I believe, based off of the data that I see here, and doing all those kind of north and south comparisons of, well, they don't do this, and they don't see this, and they don't do this, that this is a reasonable thing for us to do. And then we set this up and then say, okay, who's Who's performing to that? Who's not? Is that because of the complexity of the patient? Or is that because of practice patterns? Is that because of processes that are enabling because everything is in a team environment now? Is there something in the team environment that's inhibiting one provider, but also, uh, uh, but that's not inhibiting another provider? But you have to start from that to actually force this issue, lest you give yourself a pass that 
people who pay for it, it aren't giving. <laughs> like, you know what? Sorry, get it. I understand it. Sorry, the system is not designed to do that. And in fact, we're going to put more pressure on you. As I told you, the government is talking to all of us, including sicknessing. How do you make healthcare more affordable? And like, you know what? We're not the ones who are like doing really well here, but we understand the imperative. We just don't have that much room to negotiate, particularly because we don't want to compromise quality. We don't want to say to our providers, now you have to run twice as fast or as fast, irrespective of the dynamics that you have to face. We have to all be mindful of that. But that's part of this conversation. You have to there, consider all these elements. There's a lot in everything you just said there. I mean, I, I just want to echo the last point, though, that um, it's really, it, it seems like systems that serve poor people get held to an accountability that's higher than systems that serve privileged folks. That's my observation yeah, as yeah. someone who runs an organization, yeah. helps poor people. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm tired of being lectured, for example, by politicians who want lower housing construction costs. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't have much control over that. <laughs> yeah. I really don't. But it's the same, so I'm starting to call that yep. question. And so my point is, I think we need to continuously call people on these um, accountability when you're serving the folks who are the most challenged with yeah. the community. That's what Tamarine uh, is. We need right to be now. accountable, but not in a way that is unrealistic. Right, and we, we do these things even with our waivers. Like we see the waivers as uh, important and integral to what we do, but as we as you've seen over time, the waivers these were dollars that. <laughs> Everyone who appreciated were dollars because you don't get paid enough. And all of a sudden it became dollars that you have to earn. And it's like, no, I earned them before and you didn't pay me then, but now I have to earn them again right. because you didn't pay me enough. And it, that construct just goes away. And then to earn them now, as Dr. Barber pointed out, becomes increasingly harder. And, and, and people forget that. It's just like it gets conveniently set aside. So now this waiver is ending. We're obviously quite concerned about that and uh, continue to work to try to figure out what other sort of additional supplemental, more EPP, more QRP. And we're trying to do this in sort of a compelling value analysis way. And part of my comment is like, Who's going to tell people that this stuff is hard and this stuff costs money and we don't have the money? Like, you know, it, what was that adage? Why do you rob the banks? Because that's where the money is. We're not the banks. Sadly, we are not. Uh, so, yeah, you got to call people on it. Now, how far that gets us, I don't know. But I, I hope, and uh, we use a lot of our providers to know that, like, they become the, uh, in, in some cases, more compelling voices that we can keep pushing back, but we also don't get the luxuries just getting a pass because nobody's giving that to us. But I think we, we also, I mean, this goes back to my comment this morning about, you know, the baseline of our patients being more challenging than others, like in the OB space, but just across the board, we have to be able to quantify this. We have to be able to tell that story more than just saying our patients are poor. Right. I mean, you know, we, we have to, right? That's the other thing. It's right? a tough it's, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard to do. And, and there's also sort of the challenge that you don't want to say we should have lower expectations for our patient outcomes because of where they start, yet... I think that we need to be rewarded for the delta, right? The level of improvement. So it used to always drive me crazy when you'd say, like, looking across all these sites, you know, who has the best hemoglobin A1C? Well, yeah. if this if this clinic over here takes care of, you know, Native American folks who have a more challenging time with it, then that's the you know that's not an apples to apples comparison. But I think healthcare traditionally has had a very hard time establishing a baseline 
and measuring a delta because of the way we measure things. First of all, it's much easier to just measure the number of visits in a day, right? Super easy. Right? And also, when we measure things, we measure them at a point in time. So we're not doing the cohort thing, typically mm -hmm. speaking. And mm -hmm. so I just, I mean, I guess I'm just saying all this to say, I do think as at who we are, it would be helpful to think about how do we want to be able to quantify this so that we can tell that story because mm -hmm. right now it's hard to tell that story if we could say 70% of the people come here are housing you know unstably housed or 50% are food insecure or you know and I'm using mostly social determinants of health because that is why most of our patients are more vulnerable and have poor health outcomes mm -hmm. right yet we tend to only measure what was their blood pressure when they came and this That's is right. you know this is a function of how we get paid and what we're required to collect so it's just something kind of to think about, but I just feel like because of the number of people that we take care of um, in a county that has some really wide extreme disparities and where this organization, from what I've seen so far, is correcting some of the, those disparities ourselves, <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, yep. that's major, but we have to be able to tell that story kind of proactively. And I think mm -hmm. to the fact that that kind of um, case uh, patient uh, activity um, just puts such a, a lot of other stressors on the physicians too so it's like it's you know the all of that yeah. like just being able to deal with so many I others. think we're starting to do that at the Monday you where you were at the Monday Board of Supervisors meeting um, I heard the question and response from um, supervisor and responded from I'm um, the head of I, I think it was one of either Colleen or um, Rebecca, but how much does it cost to not be able to move these patients when they're ready to be discharged? Right. Mm -hmm. Three right. million dollars, you yeah, know. Right. Or, mm -hmm. right. And so, twenty-eight yeah. million in twenty eighteen for Highland alone. But yeah. I, but I don't want to miss your central point. So right, three. I, right now, I don't know if we can say we have X percentage of our patients who are uh, housing challenged or food challenged. I don't know if we have that data. Not, not, no, not no, granularly no. enough. <laughs> so, because especially because there's a HUD definition and there's a HRSA definition. So, when it comes to homelessness, there's all these different ways to slice and dice it. And I know just because I sit, I sit on, I've sat on a quality committee for healthcare for the homeless, that that is very challenging in general. So we just, if we don't, I mean, so in a, in other words, we can say how many people say that they're not securely housed, maybe. Um, right. We, I think, yeah. But, but to your point, I mm -hmm. think it moves us to tell the story, and that means behind that we need to create some standard data collection to, to get to that story. And then that's the opportunity with Z Epic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These are the Z scores that and, we're. And I don't know if our electronic health that. record committee for, for Sapphire has said already that those <coughs> modules are going to be turned on. So at some point we we should hear about that at just when we get ready to launch. I'm sorry, which which modules? So there's modules inside Epic that mm -hmm. allow you to turn on the ICD 10Z codes, the, oh. so, the social determinants of health. There's okay. also one more that somebody told me. It's a literally it's called slice and dice. Yes, it's and slice it, and dice. And it's <laughs> allowing you to track some of these by key demographic yeah. pieces of info. So when we get it, in, you know, when it goes live, yeah. I, I, I think Gotta we need to that. hear that. how that's So we certainly, um, I, all I, I, I don't know, I've not heard of Slice and Dice or... Slice or, or Dicer. 
Yeah, yeah, slice your dice. So, so, so it's only what we're doing. Yeah. 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 So, Cogito so is. I was going to say, I was going to mention Cogito. So, Cogito so is your. Okay. And within Cogito, this is, these are names that Epic came up with. Yes. Cogito is. Yeah, it sounds like. Well, I know Cogito, and I know we're going to have a Cogito. But I didn't even hear of Salsa Dicer. It sounds like a sandwich and a double device. It sounds like a sandwich. I need to get some surgical value. Yes, it's made by Ronco. So we Cogito is the main, you know, a repository for data and you know gather and you know it's the, the the vehicle by which we can create reports and all these dashboards and all these things. Slicer Dicer is a is an is an engine within that that allows okay. us to further get granular with the information and the data. Okay. But for clarity, we, we will turn on those social determinant trackers in yes. Epic yes. Sapphire. But, but they're the not housing. trackers. I mean, so trackers, it, and, and that's the unfortunate yeah. part that I'll just say that this has been, and I've, this is like the space I live in because because none of the EHRs, Epic is the best, but none, none of the EHRs right are now. really okay. able to, it can tell you at a point in time if someone has this at that time. At that time. So it's usually like, sure. so you could see, okay, they had it, they had it, then they didn't have it, yeah. except maybe the doctor forgot to check the box or whatever. But right. So it doesn't actually track it over time, it but it, at least it's a start. Yeah. I mean, but it is something for us to think about that at, at mm -hmm. some point we might be wanting to see how our interventions are actually helping people improve in those areas. Mm -hmm. and, so, uh, and then yeah. may I say, it's one thing to collect the data from our patients, so that would be the ideal. The other possibility is that you look at um, Alameda County's um, map of social determinants. They are also trying to do it from um, more uh, GIS data-based um, uh, sources. And so we may at some point also want to look at um, where do our patients live by zip code? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then based on zip code, you can look up a lot of different information. And and that's a different effort. I, I, I don't want to minimize that. Mm. It's just it's another way to get at some of those social determinants the, of health. The, where do community health records fit into this conversation? Well, that's part of it. Uh, the one it. in the county? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's several part of it. At least uh, my, my understanding of the CHR right now is really about um, Collecting well, first and foremost, is it's kind of principled out of um, whole person care, so it's focused on a high, high risk, uh, high utilizer uh, uh, population. But uh, the data, particularly the data that uh, we're inputting, uh, that we've agreed to share, and then other providers uh, will allow for the record to capture a broader population. Uh, and there is a gov data governance uh, committee that's. Uh, um, um, guiding and supporting the um, the CHR's oversight committee on how to appropriately use that data to be able to uh, drive, I guess, uh, uh, awareness, uh, learnings, and make sure that we're protecting so, uh, records, just, but also using just it. For everyone else, so theoretically, that then means that for the high utilizer population, uh, record health records that are being produced by other providers in the community, i.e service providers working to rehouse homeless people mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in a whole person care project, mm -hmm. that data could potentially 
uh, be accessed yes. uh, accessed by both here this system and by the county and yeah to well, come yeah. to the, the sort of longitudinal conclusions right I'm sorry I'm not trying no, to right. in your mouth but no, I, well I'm agreeing with everything you said this thus far but go ahead it was a rhetorical, it's not a rhetorical question. I'm not really sure how it works. So just framing. Neither am I, neither are we, I think it's a concept now. Uh, uh, we're getting uh, closer to um, realizing what is the, uh, what's going to be the reality of, uh, of what can be used. But the concept, as I understand it, is, is uh, largely what you are describing, that there is an ability for. So this gets at Dr. Avalada's. Um, point about not just having point in time, but having a more longitudinal uh, yeah. record out there. But also with the caveat of, or at least one of the caveats you mentioned, which is um, there's there's so much that goes into the use of data is the definition of the data uh, elements. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, uh, just the element of like homeless or not, depending on which yep. four or five sources you use, and you know this uh, very well too. Which is not included in the case mix index, Real. homelessness. That's right. Really? So it's, it's just clinical. It, it, it's, it's clinical. It's, it's clinical. It's clinical. Yeah. So, so language is not included in case mix index. Right. So, so mm -hmm. the, the, theoretically, when we're talking about the hip replacement, yeah. if you have somebody who couldn't move to a safe environment, wouldn't there be a tendency to keep them longer? Then there'd be an impact on length of stay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. So, Although, they, they, you know, right. one of the things in this sort of varies based off, uh, off of hips and knees, but it also got gets to one of the earlier comments about kind of uh, utilization of space. And, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff to make sure we optim further optimizing the space we do have. Uh, one of our challenges is space we don't have. And by that, what I mean is industry-wide, for example, a lot of joint replacements are moving to the outpatient setting. Right. I mean, there are people who are having knee replacements and up walking that same day, right? Okay. Uh, uh, and you know, home by the you know by the next day uh, situation, which kind of speaks to some of that data. We don't have uh, outpatient ambulatory facilities uh, um, uh, as some. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my goal would be yeah. yet, uh, but we are far behind the curve, and that impacts us too because the payer uh, uh, community is pushing in that direction. Uh, and so it is more expensive to do a lot of these things in an inpatient setting that have uh, gradually gotten to an outpatient setting uh, just because of your inpatient setting is still tied to everything that's on the inpatient side. It's an access issue, and then it becomes a competition issue because as more more Medi-Cal patients can have access to outpatient uh, uh, spaces to get this done, you're out of the game, effectively. And what's, our, what's our barrier there? Is it Our barrier to that is, yeah, capital. Yeah, yeah, we have to have the capital. Plus, I would assume you, uh, yeah. <coughs> if you're going to do it on an outpatient basis, the client still has to have some place to go. Right. If, if they're homeless, I don't know if doing a hip replacement on an outpatient yeah. basis makes a lot of sense. So that's what the Vizian data yes. can't give us, right? Yeah. Yeah, whether yeah. what they were kept here for social yeah. reasons, yeah. et cetera. But it, I think but it allows you to get more granular about how many of them are those, and we don't just have the, you know, we have a couple of them that could have gone home the next day, and just because of our processes, yeah. you, you don't. Because so you get caught in you know, there's these concepts like hoteling where you have yeah. somebody come in for the night and then you have a place for them to go and they stay there yeah. three or four days. And Far cheaper than three, $3 dollars a, a night. A night. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, 
Mistake number five to, to help move us on is, yeah, you know, wrap this up. is failing to benchmark and standardize. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm going to argue that this is, this is the process. What, this is actually where we're trying to go. Mm -hmm. And that's, in my opinion, the cultural struggle at this hospital right now. You know, in my opinion, uh, historically, this hospital's sort of been a little bit like the wild, wild west. You, you just make do with what you got. You figure out how you got. And, and this organization, and as Delvecchio alluded to me, I love standard work. And we're moving towards that standard standard work, and that's the cultural struggle that we have. I like to tell one story. When I first got here, uh, I'd run a clinic on Monday morning and Friday morning, and there wasn't a template. The template was the ED, any patient who went to the ED, they'd say, go see Dr. Bouquet up in GI clinic on Monday mornings. And there'd be like a five or six template, but there'd be 30 people outside on the door. And, and you know what? I, I, I just stayed late, and we'd just see them all, right? And, and, and so when I have my more junior colleagues who are here, here complaining about the eight fixed eight-person template, right. I'm saying at least we know how many people are coming today, you know. And, and so that's the struggle that we're going through in this organization, just people showing up, everyone just trying to figure it out versus standardizing our work. And, I, and, and this, this is one big applause I have for our organization. This is exactly what we're trying to do, and it's pretty painful, but it's necessary. So. I guess as I come to my close on, on the fi interface between finance and quality, I mean, I have a lot of ideas, but I like to keep things simple. I, th I think, I think the, the, the model of the value-added committee where there is, it might not be one-to-one -one clinician to administrator, but, 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 but a high ratio of clinicians in the room, I think, can help advise any decision we make in this hospital, and I think that even includes things like non-clinical things like facilities. So that, that, that's a bigger ask in, in, the, in the long term. Um, uh, in the short term, uh, you know, I've had discussions with our board president and our, our finance chair. It, it might be nice if we had a co-mingling on the, on the respective committees. Uh, I'd be happy to give my time to the finance committee, and maybe if someone could come <laughs> and join the quality committee, that might be nice to intermingle some of those decisions. And I know that's, that's even a little bit harder, but the, 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 I guess the one I ask I'm, I'm asking for is potentially a change in process, which would be free, which would maybe to ask at the every end of every decision that we make here, what is the impact on quality? And actually to put all those, all those components of quality, steep, does this impact safety? Does this impact timeliness, efficiency, effectiveness, equity, patient-centeredness? And to make it kind of a checklist on on every, sorry, not every decision we make, but the, 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 the significant decisions. If it was just a stop point to actually think about quality, I feel like that'd be a win for us. Kath, let me ask you, um, and I appreciate your the value added committee. Is that wait? Yeah, that's okay. what it's called. What if um, value and, analysis? Sorry, value, value analysis. Yeah. What if? Um, like these per these particular things, what could would it be possible for the value analysis committee to look at space and equipment decisions, to look at um, support staff decisions, to look at um, decisions about not all procurement decisions, of course, but some of these things. Um, throughput, of course, we have a great team that's doing that, but, yeah, that's but those two are kind of team. good examples. Of what could those things that aren't exactly related to what the committee's purview is now yeah. be added to the? Yeah. I guess my response is, in theory, 
I, I love putting uh, people of, of, of different perspectives in the room, especially with a clinical perspective. I would defer to the senior management on how they build their management structure. <laughs> uh, because th that, that could completely complicate things for them, which is not what we want to do. So uh, that, that's a, a thoughtful question to pose to them, not right now, but for them to think about how could we involve clinicians, you know, maybe just beyond the chair level or other levels on decision making in aggregate within the organization. And that could address some of the issues we've heard from the public. With regard to communication. Right. And yeah, I, I think I think it's a, I think it's a great opportunity. So with that I'll close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and I just have one uh, proposal for how we move forward with the finance portion of this. I'd love for us to figure out how to do some um, so finance is really in retrospect, you know, yeah. we're staffs giving us a report, we're looking at how we're doing financially and then we're planning, retrospecting that as planning. So if we could get to some sort of dashboard uh, elements that um, the two of us are looking for uh, in the interface between quality and finance, hmm. then we can start to talk to um, staff about um, how we can get that manifested in the reporting that's done. Yeah, I think a lot of thought around, the, but I think I, I love the invitation and, I, and I'd love to participate. I think that's why we chose one for the QPSC, which is avoidable hospital days. Yeah. I think that's a great interface between quality and, and finance. And can we find more, question mark, and maybe, probably. And maybe that one shows up in both reports. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank All you. All right. Thank you. Just made it up. Huh? So in, in perfect form, we've shown that we can take a really short, quick 20-minute item and stretch it out over an hour. Yeah. Classic. That's what we do. It's our quality work. You guys. Okay. All that information about data reminded me of a funny knock-knock joke I want to tell. That some of you probably have heard, so knock-knock. Who's there? Who's there? HIPAA. HIPAA who? I can't tell you that. <laughs> That's now on the public mic. <laughs> That's on a podcast. I, was, I, I, I kept, couldn't help thinking when Michelle Lawrence told a joke, and I was like, oh gosh. Is this oh, the mine was a little bit tame. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. I want to hear that joke later. Yeah, you see it later. <laughs> All right, so let's see if we can do the reverse and take something that is uh, 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 maybe a little bit broader and try to keep it, keep it tight. Uh, so, uh, as referenced earlier, we, uh, we were asked to um, present some thinking around or some uh, detailing around what the organization, or, or one of many ways the organization tries to engage staff in um, uh, a lot of things, but this is around operational excellence. How do we solicit ideas from staff around improvements that will lead to revenue enhancement, uh, better service, uh, expense management, and again, we have several ways, but this, what we wanted to share was one broad way we do it, but then also in consideration for some of the feedback that we were hearing, both from you and yeah. from staff, how we might uh, further refine a baseline uh, that uh, we believe, and I think uh, some of the, uh, at least some of the uh, um, um, uh, information we have with you will suggest uh, is going really well and then just try to uh, kick that up a bit more. So I've asked Luis uh, to, to hang around to uh, co-pilot co with me here, uh, but I'll um, just uh, kind of run us through these. So I've kind of laid this out. Uh, we've, we've been doing but what we're going to talk about here is our work in lean, um, uh, which, um, again, for the more uh, tenured uh, trustees will know that 
It was a process introduced to the organization that uh, languished under prior uh, budget uh, um, uh, situation or, or challenges circa 2015. Uh, there was a great uh, interest from the trustees to bring it back, and uh, um, under Luis's leadership, um, uh, he uh, recruited and brought in uh, Silvio Lozano, who many of you know and have met, uh, to run our STAR team, which is System Transformation and uh, Reengineering. And so we brought Lean back in fiscal year 17. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more about uh, a bit about how that has been the way in which we uh, have generated ideas from uh, different layers of the organization that have materialized into performance improvement, process improvement that have actually lend, lend itself to revenue uh, uh, improvement as well as uh, expense management. Um, uh, and, um, and then again, as I said, uh, recognizing that it is actually a pretty uh, tight process uh, that is growing in the organization. It takes a lot of work and so maybe it actually doesn't lend itself to much more sort of uh, even more organic comments from uh, line staff, and so we're uh, proposing to you or sharing with you ideas around how we've thought about even enhancing this a bit more from that uh, uh, to achieve that part. So. Uh, this kind of is without saying why, why is it important to engage staff in this work. Uh, you know, we want to be able to surface issues that people see in their everyday work. We want to give them a voice. Uh, we want to know uh, what their priorities are as a uh, surrogate for uh, identifying priorities for the organization. For management, engaging, uh, we want to encourage and foster and give them mechanisms by which to uh, engage their frontline in a sort of reliable, standard way. Uh, for the organization, communication we talked about earlier, uh, fostering a culture of creativity and innovation, better alignment, uh, teamwork, some of these tough things that we'll have to deal with because uh, while uh, it can be somewhat euphemistic, talking about uh, being efficient, uh, managing your expenses efficiently means you're cutting some expenses out. And I'll just remind uh, the board, as you know, 70% of our costs are labor. And so uh, um, if we're looking at this in a very robust way, it's hard to avoid uh, situations where there isn't an impact from a labor perspective, but uh, we want to create the culture where people understand and appreciate that uh, uh, when it's on that side, but also recognize and make sure people understand that we don't ever uh, want to promulgate uh, the notion that we feel like uh, we can cut ourselves to efficiency or that we want to be that way strategically, always looking to provide greater value, grow, and become uh, more of an uh, uh, a, um, invaluable resource to the community we serve. So this is just an image and uh, a screenshot of our uh, internet page, uh, Four Star System Transformation and Reengineering. It has a picture of the team there. It talks about um, uh, where they are and uh, how what their mission and vision is. I know uh, you can't read this. Hopefully you saw the slides. But the mission there is to standardize clinical and related processes across AHS by working on prioritized projects and lean opportunities that will focus on improving outcomes, eliminating waste, promoting efficiency, enhancing patient, provider, and staff experience experience and aligning with strategic initiatives to support our transformation into a population health management organization. So um, Rebecca, are these all clinicians? No, no, no. It's a, a mixture of people. Maxi, uh, I, I don't actually know if there is a clinician on the team. Uh, we do. We okay. Tracing. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So it's mostly non-clinicians because they're doing process re-engineering. So okay. it's the team that brings the process to work with oh. the, the, the units that do the work uh, or that uh, have the processes. So um, maybe it'll come a bit clearer as I go through it. But this is them. Uh, you see uh, some of the links are the toolkit that they that we use for the managers to surface 
ideas, and I'll show you an example of that. Event calendars which show throughout the organization where they're doing uh, current engagement and what those uh, are. Uh, a link to some success stories where, like, you know, we reduce supply costs in the OR. We've captured charges more efficiently in this area. We've uh, improved uh, the processes for... Um, uh, throughput and things like that. So they, they have that and then some testimonials. So it's kind of a little bit of a uh, an advertisement for people to kind of appreciate that. And some of those we'll show you with you as well. Um, let's see here. So this uh, slide shows you uh, the, uh, I think this, we call it our OID form, right? So our opportunity identification form. It is a tool where a manager, a staff member, anyone who has a improvement idea can actually then submit this. They identify who they are, where they are in the organization, who their manager is what idea they have about this and then give us some sense of what they think would be a good time to start and stop this uh, thing or what they think will be a length of it. Uh, we re require that they have uh, services throughout the leadership so that they have a sponsor that's a more senior leader who's already sort of vetted this and said you should submit this so we can get the resources of this team to help us to advance it. And then we just ask for a clear and concise explanation of the opportunity. What is the current state? What's the big idea? What are the, thing, what are the things you're trying to prevent or uh, present? And I skipped the second one, but I want to go back to that and see, so I can just show you. We allow for them to say, this could hit in any, any area. It could be a quality improvement. It could be something around the EHR. It could be around health pack and serving that community. It can be operational excellence. It could be around uh, managed care payments, the waiver, the revenue cycle improvement, and, and the like. Um, the next thing is, uh, this is the second part or a continuation of the, uh, the, the opportunity identification process. So you can see it's a very comprehensive sort of intake process to be able to allow them to then look at uh, uh, the relevance or vet the uh, opportunity figure out how, many, uh, how much resources may need to be applied to it, uh, and cons consult with the various stakeholders to figure out then how we move this forward. Uh, this slide really just identifies um, uh, kind of uh, uh, preliminary ideas from the person who's submitting it about what the approach uh, would be, what goals and milestones we may say, what, uh, or, or target, whether the baseline data is, uh, what sort of target metrics and all, all of this stuff do we have. And then it's the, la the lower part of it is the approval process. So do we have a uh, project sponsor who signed off on it? Is there a business owner who, would, who will own this after we're done with the in improvement engagement and make sure that it gets hardwired into the organization so they're involved in that process? Are there other stakeholders who might need to be engaged who are impacted by this? And then we, we surface all of that. Um, uh, and then the start team uses it, prioritizes, and they come up with uh, whether we can do it, apply resources to it, sequence it, and get it in the time cycle to get it done. The next slide just shows you kind of the, um, the almost like a Gantt chart of, of kind of how we walk through the process, or a, a, a process map, I should say, of how we go through the process. Uh, so the first part I just described to you, sort of number one, where they submit those things. Number two is uh, uh, the sign-off, so it begins the sign-off process. And we broke the sign-off process in two parts, whether this is sort of an IT-related thing, which also has sort of a process uh, uh, improvement uh, angle to it, because then it involves like uh, going into software and uh, hardware solutions and things like that. But a lot of things we do don't necessarily involve that element. So uh, we have a non-IT approval process where we validate that it doesn't have an impact there. And it's a little bit cleaner if that's the case. But if it does, then it requires another level of approval where we work with the IT team uh, because they have all these priorities, not the least of which is Sapphire now. And we have a really scaled down resource. So we don't want to engage in something that 
it's going to require this if we don't have that uh, ability to drive it home if it if it uh, if it warrants it. So, uh, so we have that, and then we have our enterprise project management office or uh, Kaizen uh, production office team go through, schedule the event, work with the team owners or the uh, business unit, and kick off and launch the event and see it through completion. So just to give you sort of a, uh, some statistics around what has happened since 2017, and these are done on an annualized basis. So it's fiscal year 17, which started at the end of 16, would have been July through December. So that's a small window of time where we had seven improvement efforts even uh, that happened during that month. And then we talked about the number of staff that are engaged, trained uh, into the tool and the processes. Um, I should say that there are times when people will submit things and we realize it doesn't need this robust of an infrastructure. So we can take people ideas and go back to them and say, this sounds great. You can do this on your own. You don't need the engagement of this team uh, to move forward with it. This is more when it requires some support to come in uh, to help you. And we are you know, doing more of those. So as you can see, year over year, uh, we're from seven to nine, not a huge improvement over that year, but more, many more staff engaged in 2017. And then a big jump from nine to 26 and 18, and uh, up to 342 staff involved in those uh, 26 efforts that were going on over the year. 2019, uh, we're almost two-thirds through, and a little bit of an attrition, again, largely because of bandwidth. Uh, a lot of people are involved in Epic, and so not a lot of ideas coming forward, but also the staff who would support this work are kind of also involved in some of those deeper uh, uh, efforts around supporting uh, what we call core, which is clinical operational readiness and uh, um, access and revenue cycle readiness in Epic 2. So well, a lot of stuff is maybe in that space. Maybe at least the ones that, that are at this level too, uh, that's I, I think true, but, but we have a goal of continuing to uh, uh, get a surface more ideas because improvement, there's always room for improvement, uh, uh, but maybe it will be more uh, this being more the reality than uh, all the work we were able if to I do can, in 18. If I, if I can add to that, I, I think what to the like, in all fairness, as I, you know, as I work with Sylvia, I said you're extremely generous because they're only counting in 2019, as Delecu said, you know, due to bandwidth and the focus largely primarily being on Epic, uh, you know, the team hasn't, you know, worked on other projects. The entire Epic has been a workflow redesign and a workflow and process improvement process, right? right? I mean, you right. know, everything has had to be reevaluated. And so I said, you're a little generous not counting it. I mean, just saying that you're you the one. <laughs> <laughs> It would be one and then the number would be like thousands of people, basically. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, again, just, just to share that, that you know, the, the focus really has been, but it really has had an impact. And really, when we're, when we're looking at these two things, it's not just, you know, obviously the activities and the, the Kaizen events or the opportunities that we've taken on to really drive improvement, but it's also focusing on how we continue to teach our staff to fish. Right? How we teach them about the process. We get them engaged in the process. Get them excited about the process. And so, really, this year uh, with Epic, there's been so much engagement involvement that I think we're seeing great, great value of that. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't. I might have missed it, but what does Kaizen mean? Oh, sorry, you didn't miss it. Uh, this is yeah, this is. And us. I noticed it in the comments. Kaizen too. is. Uh, 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 Japanese word, and it's about uh, uh, the process. It's, it's actually the process improvement. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. the pro yeah, it's the so-called Toyota methodology. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a design process. Celine so is sort of a healthcare version of uh, TPS, which is Toyota Production System. It's how Toyota improved. Auto, automobile manufacturing, and it was about creating standard work uh, throughout the process. Uh, it's about um, 
prioritizing the importance of people and processes uh, is about going to they call it the gimba, the shop floor. So making sure that people who are responsible for managing the work are actually viewing the work and working with people to apply those principles of in continuous improvement um, into everyday work and actually in, in, in um, not just equipping people with those tools but also uh, uh, um, enabling them uh, to, to do that. a long time since I went to business Yeah, yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> but that's what it is, effectively. Sorry about that. Thanks for calling it out. Um, uh, so the next thing, uh, this morning we share a few testimonials, uh, and you can see the flavor is from across the uh, organization. So we have a lot of uh, clinical, mostly clinical staff, because most of what we do is clinical, but amongst the clinical staff, you see uh, a physician, you see uh, nurses, uh, a lot of nurses, a lot of charge nurses and nurse managers, uh, unit coordinators, and even line staff and some of the other slides, uh, and including this one, actually, a, a physical therapist who's working with us here saying the EB surge plan really works. Like, that was a big process, and it actually is, uh, notwithstanding the last two days that you've heard uh, that we're in red, sometimes you can't control the input uh, uh, elements, but we do have a plan in place, and we do uh, respond accordingly. And, and, and did the ED search plan come through this? Yes. Uh, so it was one of the engagements it, uh, that came, that was uh, uh, staffed and uh, supported by uh, the, the STAR team. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the one, Pat Reynolds, the, the nurse manager over at uh, the OR, or surgical service nurse at Alameda, because this is one of our earlier projects, and it was a really great success. Was it about equipment standardization or charge capture for charge equipment? Capture for yeah. Yeah, for oral equipment, and I just loved her saying, I didn't know where to go to find this kind of support in the system. The STAR team provided the direction and support I needed and made a great difference, and you can see by the results, and it took a great weight of frustration. I was, she says off my shoulders, but what we heard was it was off of her shoulders and a lot of her staff who were by extension struggling with the work that they uh, enabled and uh, with their partnership. Let me let me let me just Please. let me just ex ex expand on that because it, it really is one of the great success stories. I mean, uh, of all of these are, but but in that particular case, what was happening was that uh, because Alameda Hospital and the surgery department, it's pre it was pretty much all on paper, and so what was happening was cases were being done every single day, and you had a staff member processing all of these different claims. So they were taking all of the information that was being inputted into the sheets, and they were taking information from that to go ahead and uh, identify and capture all the charges that were associated with that particular case. And so those would kind of stack up, and so then it was kind of getting to the point where they were kind of being batched and all that, and to the point where we were about a million dollars in the rears and in some cases because it was taking so long for us to get those processed well some of them you know there's there's such a thing as timely filing for reimbursement and so some of those we were losing and so they came back and you know went through the entire Kaizen event and they went through the whole process improvement process mapping you know workflow redesign everything they created a visual workplace to where now all charges are processed within three days yeah. Awesome. Yep. It's really good. Yep. Um, so uh, again, I, I won't read all of these or even all of the ones that are there, but uh, another one that I'm, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with because this was a bone of my existence was uh, how well uh, uh, unit and department managers were managing their uh, monthly finances uh, and largely on the expense side. And part of it was a lot of the payments or, or validation of payments oftentimes will come centralized to the organization. And then by the time it reaches a unit for cooperation, sometimes it wasn't clear that that was done in time for us to pay 
it, uh, so we have a backlog. Otherwise, it was done, and it's not clear that people knew or had actually taken the right steps to pay it. And sometimes it just never got done, to be perfectly honest. And so uh, we had all sorts of variation here, and the goal, again, was to create standard work. We work with Cher DuVernay, who is the manager in accounts payable, and it just, it, 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 We've talked about technology, using technology, and we've gotten this process so cool now that, like, you know, I'll get a monthly or an email that says, look at these expenses, did you authorize them? Good, right? And and it's done. And and what what I hear from this, and I didn't get to hear their report out, but I'm reading her, her uh, comment, and she talks about the fact uh, that they use something called a, hu a huddle board. So she, before that, she says, the lean tools and resources have been very valuable, and we've been using them as a part of our daily activities. For example, the huddle board, it was hard to implement it first, but now most days, the team is coming to the huddle board prepared and ready to report. This is where they're going and they're looking at because they're getting data to show bottlenecks. Where are these things that have been sitting on my desk? It'll move to somebody else's desk when a person's on vacation because now someone hasn't responded. And you look out and it's three months later. You know, so, But now it's all visual and people can see what's happening and they can speak to it on a daily basis and it really has improved, I think, the processes. And then she goes on to acknowledge people because it's really changed her ability to manage and the staff's ability to get their work done. So, so And then I love the uh, bear control person. Um, and I think this must have been about uh, uh, the search plan too. But he says, it really works. Doesn't seem like I'm working in the same hospital. I just thought that was hilarious. Uh, and then anyway, uh, again, on and on uh, of that flavor, but I encourage you to read them uh, uh, and you can see. But the point about all of this is we think this is a really valuable process and it's corroborated by some of the engagement we're having, some of the results and testimonials that we're getting from people, but there's room for improvement. And that's what I'm going to uh, get to here, which is that um, what, what, what we heard from this is that, yeah, we're getting a lot of input and we started to look and a lot of the input is coming from more, uh, not senior people in the organization, but even managers where they're having a better lens to look at what the opportunities are. And what we want to do is encourage more staff uh, input. And, and I will say, even the ones where the managers are submitting them, a lot of times the managers are submitting them after the staff have discussed it with them. Part of that is because, as you saw, that opportunity identification form does require a different lens to be able to complete. So, yeah. so now we're just trying to make it, democratize it even a bit more. And so we've added a, a, high, a fourth level here that's called idea generation. Uh, idea generation. And what that is, is, is it still requires department managers to work with staff to uh, get those ideas, and we're trying to create standard work around this, but, but then it's to empower them to directly submit those ideas, to, to advance them so that they have some sense of ownership in them, and creating a tool that allows them to do that in a little bit more uh, uh, um, uh, less onerous uh, manner. And then the rest of it, though, still filters into the exact same process that we already have, because we want to leverage the fact that we have that, and it appears to be working quite well. So uh, this is a draft. This is not finalized yet, uh, and we'll see the schedule uh, uh, right after this. But this is a little bit more. It's, it's a little wordier because we do still need to collect information. But as you can see, it's only about two or three lines of narrative that people have to complete to say uh, what that idea is. And it doesn't require all the other pieces that will then work with the managers and others to complete if it, if it uh, proves to or suggests that there is some there there for the organization. So we're asking, you know, again, identify who you are, what department you're in, what's the current situation, basically what's wrong or what idea do you have, and then what's your suggestion and what's the expected results from this. So it gives the uh, star team uh, the ability to assess that in a way that is consistent with what the person intended and or other ways. How concerned were you before starting that this, well, I'm asking both of you, that this would result in this 
Pedal over. Like a deluge. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, a little, a little concerned. But not might not do this because they, they just don't think they could possibly address all yeah. of it. Well, a little bit, and that's why we try to. I mean, one of one of the ways in which we had, and I uh, acknowledge uh, Trustee Hernandez had this uh, brilliant idea that she said she thought about it at like 2 a.m. So I don't, I don't know her sleeping patterns, but. <laughs> But it's really for 2 a.m. thoughts, so maybe we should, I should email her at 2 a.m. more often. That's when the bar is closed. That's, oh, oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, so she was in her satellite office. Sorry. You're answering. Back to the core. Um, so, yes, uh, there was some concern in what we wanted to make sure is, and, and we're still doing this, and the last slide will tell you the process we're going to do. But we want to make sure there's a a back in infrastructure behind this because the last thing you want to do is encourage people to submit ideas and they go into a vacuum or they feel like they never heard anything back and part of that is because you don't have a well thought out plan to vet them and some of that heard back is like great idea uh, we can do it now great idea we can do it later actually not that good of an idea but thank you and keep thinking about it but we need to have a mechanism by which to to do that and so we're still you know we're being thoughtful about that and I hope the next uh, the, the detail will show you that yeah. that's what we want to do but that's that was a concern for us and that's why we we uh, and that's how we're considering it as you say um, and I like the green yellow red on the next page yes. Um, I really think that this this suggestion form is important to simplify. When I looked at that first flow chart uh, or process chart, I just was I, I just skipped over. Yeah, it. And and even the second one, you're like, oh, look, we added a new line. I'm like, oh, yay! Um, uh, so for the for the for the for the frontline staff that have a singular idea, this yeah. employee suggestion form. Is really important. That it's huge. Let the manager then run with it, but I think you got to give people that easy access. Okay. Yeah. Number two, I, I, I want to echo that. Uh, one just observation I would be careful on question one what is the current situation? What is wrong? I would say what needs improvement or what could improve because wrong is a really dangerous it word to use yeah. in uh, employee suggestion boxes. Okay. And then the other is that um, I would encourage us not to force the person who's trying to come up with an idea to tell you where the expected benefit or results are going to be because mm. I think that takes um, a pretty you know, significant level of responsibility and maybe even the ability to see it beyond mm -hmm. just its immediate idea. Mm -hmm. This form has tremendous opportunity to just capture information for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would even require people to sign their name to it. Um, huh. Because again, you know, y you want some of this to also capture stuff that people are even just asking themselves, why do we do this? Mm -hmm. And it might be threatening. I mean, they may be coming up with a suggestion that actually ties back to performance issues around another person or a manager. Sure. Yeah. And and I'd be careful on this one so that you, you just are trying to collect that information. You, you don't necessarily need to get back to the person suggesting this type of a recommendation. And I hope we're also allowing for I mean, is this going to be a printed thing that people can just pick up and then drop off somewhere? 
Uh, I don't know that we've thought that one through because um, uh, if, if we do that, then we want to make sure we democratize it. And so we can't just do it at one site and the pick up and drop off then becomes another mechanism yeah. of I submitted it two months ago and you yeah. didn't come check that box because yeah. the box only gets something once every six months. You but, know, yeah, but then, but then not everybody has a computer. And so then this becomes a different. Well, not everyone has one, but we, we facilitate access to one because we do a lot of conferences uh, electronically. So. So, and, and trust me, I've gotten emails from people's personal email uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, as well, which always boggles my mind because I'm like, not everyone has access to an email, but they all do have a work email address, but they don't necessarily use it. Uh, just to, to address your concern and your desire to follow up with staff and make sure they're being heard, I think you just have to say, you know, like uh, somehow under name, you know, optional, you can, this can be anonymous, however, we will not be able to. Uh, it may impact our ability to, to get you feedback. You. Yeah. No, if you just have to state well, that. It's not, just, it's not just the feedback, but I will tell you that truly from experience even thus far with the work that we've done, if you don't know who to go back to to get clarity around what the concern is or right. what the opportunity, of, you know, what the area of opportunity is, you'll get this very vague and you're like, put that disclaimer how do I how do I yeah. how do I address this and so, so not being able to go back to someone understood but that's a, that's a, we can add that to the disclaimer the disclaimer yeah. is uh, it's optional to submit your name however our ability to both follow up with clarifying questions and or right. to acknowledge uh, you or respond to the idea may be or impacted provide you an update you, on how yes. we're and don't have yes. any emergencies or personnel issues in here I mean right. because I to your point like, yeah. we, we won't be following up in that way that's right if it's if it's personnel then you won't get a runner. You know, what's wrong? I don't like this person. That's my opportunity for improvement. Uh, I will say, and, uh, and this is more anecdotal in nature, um, uh, I think some of the staff probably bemoan it, but uh, staff often do come to me with uh, um, ideas that are that are not fully thought through, but they're thinking about things. And they ask, why do we do such and such? And sometimes they do it with a, a question mark that suggests that they think that there is a, a motive that's not necessarily uh, pure. But I don't always know the answer because I don't know what they're talking about, but, but, but I, I commit to asking the question and getting back to them. And those are oftentimes ways that people will ask me even somewhat sensitive things. Yeah. But, I, but, but your point is taken and I appreciate the feedback. And, uh, can I make a uh, suggestion? Okay, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Go ahead. That's okay. Um, you want me to finish? Yeah. I have one more slide, that's it. No, you have two more slides. Oh, two more, but you already referenced this one. Yeah. Is this the one you want to talk about? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to zip through this because you've all seen it and you know, appreciate the feedback. We, we thought about it with that uh, uh, structured mind, not that we thought, oh, yay, with the other one, but uh, but we know that uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, more detailed and we want it just a way to kind of, in a high level, capture what have we succeeded in, what sort of things are being completed, you know, kind of, yeah, again, as it says, red, yellow, green, where are we right now? And then the last one is... Oh, but but oh, if I can just yeah, add please. to that, I mean, I think, you know, this, this is an extremely important communication tool. Yeah. This right. is something that we would put at every single communications board in every department so that way people are aware because, you know what, I may work in the seventh floor and someone in the second floor submitted an idea and, ah, you know what, I was thinking about that too and, oh, this is what they're doing about it. And so, well, I mean, it's, it's a great way of letting you align with what we were talking about. Yep. Earlier. And, yep. yeah, it, it's a, so, so, so loop. That, the That's loop, right. closing the loop. Right. And, and, and in many cases, you know, I mean, if it's, if it's a red, for example, sorry, this, we, we, you know, it, it. We, we need to build another parking lot. Uh, sorry, I, 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 you know, I don't have a footprint to build another parking lot. We put that as a red, but at least people know that we've addressed it, we've closed the loop, and it's done. Yeah. And, and so. I guess my only question would be, 
if this is up on a board somewhere, how do I know what it relates to? Oh, it's only it's only in the area where you work, right? Isn't this no, no, no. But oh. the, the goal would be that we would have this available to everyone. Oh, okay. So that way, you know, because like I said, even if it's someone that works in a different area, and when they read or they see, because you know, we'll we'll populate it and we'll make sure that we know that this was a suggestion that was made and this is what we're doing about it. It's either agreeing or making it happen. Seems like it needs a little description or something with it. Yeah. Well, again, I can only fit so much on the screen. Yeah. I was just trying to give you a sense of this is the intent of what we're trying to do here to cl close it to provide people cool. where we're at. Okay, and the next is just a sequence of next steps. So uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, okay. Just considering where we are right now in the organization, is August necessarily the right time to launch this? Uh, well, that's a good point. We can consider that. Maybe, I, I, maybe it is or isn't. I, I'd I love to. What, what are your thoughts on it? I think we should. It is. You this think is, it is? This is the time when you want people to feel like they're contributing to the solutions. Okay. Give them a chance. Yeah. 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 Okay. What do you think? Yeah. I, I put the date. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man, he's he like, do it. Like, he's the one who suggested it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he's a lawyer. Yeah, he's yeah. a lawyer. <laughs> All right. Um, and then you can see as of late, I don't, I don't need to read to you that uh, we, we, we're going to do some additional activities uh, shortly thereafter to kind of uh, completely socialize the uh, process, get some feedback on it. Uh, uh, we are just like we got suggestions for you, seeking suggestions from others on the forum before it's finalized. Uh, uh, and then um, uh, the report uh, being done in uh, November and uh, start to share share the results uh, from, from the spring forward. So, this will be system-wide. Um, be yes. OK. Are you going to celebrate ideas that made for savings, ideas that made for, you know, are, is there going to be some kind of an acknowledgement? Like, you already have great ideas from the STAR team and, and their work. What about suggestions that come up? Will you be able to acknowledge them and kind of highlight the good stuff that people come up with? Uh, I think so. I think at varying levels, uh, we may even, uh, with your support, um, I, 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 I feel like the uh, board recognitions, I recognize it took a lot of time and we may need to kind of revisit it, but we put it on ice for a minute. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, 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 well then I'll stop talking. Do it in a different form. In a different form. We okay. only have so much time for board meetings. Fair enough. Uh, but what you do is also what you prioritize, and so yes. I'll challenge you a little bit to think about that. Because uh, I, I will say, people really, we got a lot of feedback of why don't, why don't you do that anymore, uh, and we just said. Really? Uh, early on, now it's died down, uh, but uh, in the first, first couple of months, people loved it. Uh, we used to do these recognitions at the beginning of the board, but they got way out of hand. Because uh, we try to do it for every business, we try to do it for every business unit, but I gotta tell you, they loved it. People, people I'm sure they did. So. Can we <laughs> just do an annual event? And we can you could. And I will say that one of the things, Tony's not here, but one of the, we, we now do every year a service award, and you guys come to that event. Um, while it's very well regarded, and we do it for milestones, right? So 10, 15, 20, yeah, up to 40 plus years we have people. Um, we also, we also we struggle a little bit with it being a recognition of basically survival. Uh, and, and not necessarily espousing accomplishment. And so we're trying to 
balance it a little bit to infuse some accomplishment elements in that yeah. as well. So maybe that's it. That's right. a good way to weave it in. He's only been here six months, but he did a really good job. We yes. should do that for the board too. Survival. You've <laughs> <laughs> been here yeah. two years. Anyway, yeah. State yeah. Island. We're gonna. I didn't know you'd gotten that feedback about us chopping that out. That's Initially, and it, but but I will say at that point we told people, oh, it's just a temporary hiatus. We're we're gonna revisit it, and it was. Yeah, it was. How long ago? But as I said, no one's brought it up in a couple. Uh, we months, did. At least not I, I mean, I, I did get. A, I mean, yes, not in recent months, but I mean, there there was a lot of feedback about that because, I mean, people actually came in on their day off. They dressed up in a they suit. Brought, they brought family. I mean, it was a huge deal, and it was a certificate. I mean, it, it's just the impact. Oh, sign certificates still. Just, I just, I'm just saying. It was. No, let's take that back into consideration. Yeah. Giving the impact on the, on the culture. Yeah. Because we care about culture. We care about we it. Do. We do. Maybe there's some middle ground. Yeah. 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 Maybe a middle ground. I, I think bringing the whole thing, I, I agree with you all. It was, you know, sometimes you look up and it's like, the meeting started at 5, but really not till 7.30, right. uh, which is kind of exactly. nuts. Uh, um, so, yeah, no, I, I think it was a different way. Maybe it was that we don't have to actually read the acknowledgments. That also took very long. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> the story it was one on one on one. And yeah. yeah. But anyway. I have one more question. We'll take that up in our agenda plan. Yes. I'm just also wondering if there's been any thought about. Uh, I know we have the recognition. We have the annual gala. Is there anything more along the lines of an informal? Yes. You know. Um, AAA did something pretty interesting. They just did a social media campaign to announce the gig car launch. So mm -hmm. you can pick up a car anywhere and now drop it off if you live in Berkeley and parts of Oakland and Emeryville. And they did this huge social media thing for people to show up at um, Lake Merritt. And <coughs> they had entertainment, they had, and lots of people came mm -hmm. just with the social media you know, kind of announcement and get people out to celebrate. Right? Hmm. I, I mean, that's not that far from here. Is is it something that we would consider having like a family picnics or that kind of celebratory event? Connected to this work, not just because we we do employee appreciation once a, a year and we do right. A's games and we've done yeah. other certain types of things. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you're saying not that type of thing. It's something specifically connected to. Just celebrating achievements, these kinds of you know ideas yeah. being used, acknowledging that. So, so I definitely what 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 I guess I wish we convey is, is we definitely want to do that, and we'll think about ways to do it. Yeah. Uh, and and your your ideas are, are very much welcome, but we'll come back to you with some yeah. of the things we're putting in place, and we can you know be mindful of of, of, of uh, resources, but also right. make sure that we're not looking yeah. people. Yeah. So maybe not a trip to Vegas, uh, but no, not uh, a trip to Vegas. A trip to Lake Mirror. Club. Yeah. A trip to <laughs> uh, uh, I think we are at the end of our agenda. We are. Um, we do have a, a closed session uh, time uh, reserved, which we can go do. State Route 13 North Oakland. I'm out of here. So thank you to our, our very patient audience members. I hope hope you got as much out of this today as we did. Um, and share that with uh, with your constituencies. Um, and uh, we're adjourning the closed session. <laughs>